0: While he may have needed no introduction, these ladies, unfortunately, do.
1: You're listening to Old Timey Crimey, crimes from the golden age of yesteryear. Now, here are your hosts, Christy, Amber, and Scott.
0: Hey, it's Old Timey Crimey. I'm Christy. I'm Scott. And I'm Amber, and I'm Chris. We are back once again with special guest Chris Garcia, and we're going to be talking about the victims of Jack the Ripper and telling you some stuff that you probably—I I assure you—if you haven't read the Five by Haley Rubenhold, you do not know it, this was a this book was a ride. Oh my gosh, Chris! Thank you so much for the recommendation. I feel like my mind has just my mind is just so opened (laughs) that's
2: it's was the first time i read it it was an absolute revelation and the second time i read it it was an audiobook so i didn't actually read it so i could slack off but my kids heard and it probably wasn't the best
0: (laughs) real quick before we dive in here let's do some rays of light uh scott i'm quitting my job
1: i quit my job And they're being dicks to me, so I was dicks back, and now I get paid for an extra hour that I don't have to work, and maybe somebody's in trouble, because she's a bitch.
0: Yay! Rays of light in song form. Amber, sing it to me. (laughs) I
3: can't right now. Pass.
2: (laughs) Unsolved Mysteries is back on Netflix. Fuck yeah, it is.
0: Wow, really? so excited.
2: The first two episodes are phenomenal. It's so good. They're still about terribly depressing subjects, but it's... It makes me not miss Robert Stack. That's how good it is. Wow, who's the host now? No host. No narrator, anything? No. Really? Nothing. It's, the way it's done is super, super minimal on that. They do interviews, but there's no narrator. There's no host. Wow. And it's, it's great. It is, it's so good. I'm going to watch it tonight. Stay up until 4 a.m. That's all, really. Mm. <laughs> I,
1: I remember one time I came home from school and nobody was home. No one was home. Nobody. And everybody had vanished. And I went, I don't know what's going on. What had ended up happening was, and I'd found this out finally at 10:30. Somebody thought, hey, we should probably give Scott a call. Um, my dad had been taken to the hospital for a vicious asthma attack, and on the way there, my mom was in a car accident. Oh my god. Like somebody r- run the red light and T-boned my mom. So they were both in the hospital. I didn't know this at the time. Uh, like I said, uh, the only people who were up to uh, to calling me were my brother and my sister, and of course they don't give a shit about me. So no one called until mom was you know able to call. And uh, I remember it was Wednesday, so you know Wednesday. What do we do? And this was in October of a Wednesday. What do we do? Let's watch some Unsolved Mysteries, right? Unsolved Mysteries is great. I love it. Sitting down with my dad and my mom watching Unsolved Mysteries. Since it was October, it was all about ghosts. And whenever, whenever finally my mom came home, like two days later, I was cuddled in a corner, like quivering <laughs> with all the lights on the house because I, I had fucking freaked myself out.
2: That, that's the best way to spend all of October, really.
1: Yeah, yeah. Curled up in a closet going, I hope, I hope both of my parents don't die. Shouldn't have watched Unsolved Mysteries tonight. Let's order <laughs> yeah. a pizza. Oh, wait, I live in Salisbury where we can't.
3: Oh. That is grounds to move. Right? Yeah. Right, the, right? Yeah, yeah. the
2: story I've ever heard. <laughs> Fuck. Um,
3: so moving on, my <laughs> ray of light is uh, my daughter turned five this weekend and uh we went to a petting zoo um and she dressed like a princess and ran around the yard. She got her very first pair pair of uh sparkly high heels which we've been wearing every day cool. um so yeah it, it's it's been a very busy very sparkly uh couple of days but it's it's been lovely
1: i love <laughs> I love the little photos you posted and except for the one where like, your daughter has her head. Super through. Scotty. Super Scotty. <laughs> Apparently, I share my name with some mutant-powered spider monkey at a zoo.
0: <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> hey, can I, marry,
2: can I marry my boys off to your your daughter? Because they're the same age. So, it would be just super easy if you could take one of them off my hands like today.
3: Hey, she could be non-traditional and take both.
2: Oral contract. <laughs> <laughs>
0: My ray of light is: I met goats. <laughs> I thought she was going
1: to say "God at first, I was like, "Oh God, are we going down this fucking Christian road?"
0: God I, mean, <laughs> I don't mind
1: you being Christian, no. but Nothing worse than a newly formed Christian.:
0: We're going down the livestock the road. Like goats. G- 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 g-
1: <laughs> Tell me about the goats) okay
0: yeah uh yesterday we went to visit a coworker of Jackson's whose family has gotten some goats. They had this plan before like everything happened, but they managed to, to do it over the the quarantine. There are four of them. I am certain of three of their names. The other one I'm going to guess at. Their names are Miley, Lily, and um my favorites Dia. Aww and they were delightful oh my god it was so fun they knocked me down one of them was so trying so desperately to get into the bucket of like little treats i had that she just knocked me right to the ground we have a picture of me just laughing with these goats like nudging me trying to get to the treats i fed them pieces of apple we fed them um maple leaves or oak leaves i can't remember which one but yeah it was it was everything i dreamed it would be i have loved goats for so many years and i've never met a damn goat (laughs)
1: So aren't they just lovely? Like, Did he headbutt you a little bit?
0: Uh, the one that was trying to get to the treats actually kept on uh, hopping up and trying to climb me like a tree, essentially, just like <laughs> putting the, the, the front legs on mine and you know the front hooves on my leg, and like know, that's how they knocked me down.
1: So. I watched a great yeah. video the other day on goat eyes.
0: it, but okay. yeah.
1: <laughs> goat eyes apparently like goat's eyes the reason the pupil is like horizontal like it's kind of like a slip pupil but it's horizontal is because it helps them see prey moving amongst vertical uh vertical things stuff that prey that uh you know prey uh, catchers animals that are coming after them because goats Predators. are goats are prey yes thank you i forgot the word for a second <laughs> Cats, though, their eyes are horizontal. It helps them see animals amongst the tall grass. But if you watch a cat, that's not so good for depth perception with the vertical pupils. If you watch a cat right before they pounce on their target, their pupils will actually widen into huge circles because then they have the depth perception ability. And then the narrator said, showed a picture of an octopus's eye, which looks like Charlie Brown's mouth after he's missed the football. And he goes, we don't know what's going on with this. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, uh, some women who were quite unfortunately for them prey. I feel horrible about that segue.
1: Yeah, I'm leaving it in. Oh my God,
0: <laughs> I feel absolutely horrible about that segue. But you left me nothing but but prey and predator, and I was like, some uh, ladies that were left wide eyed. <laughs> oh. Um, okay, so we are going to be discussing, as we said at the top, the victims of Jack the Ripper. Telling you the stuff that you don't know that has been left out of the narrative. Um, I think I should actually start with a quote from Haley Rubenhold's book, The Five. I think it gives you an idea of what we're getting into here. Quote, the fibers that have clung to and defined the shape of Polly, Annie, Elizabeth, Kate, And Mary Jane's stories are the values of the Victorian world. They are male, authoritarian, and middle class. They were formed at a time when women had no voice and few rights, and the poor were considered lazy and degenerate. To have been both of those things was one of the worst possible combinations. That tells you where we're going here. Uh, And one thing that's going to figure in very, very heavily is something that uh, the the less fortunate had to rely on in Victorian England was lodging houses. If you couldn't even lease yourself a furnished room uh, you you could get a, a night at a lodging house, uh, four pence per night for a single bed, eight pence per night for a double bed inside a wooden partition and both of those uh, the, the fleas and the lice I'm sure and, and the rats probably came for free is, is, is how that worked yeah. Um, yeah, not a great situation for sleeping and um, in Whitechapel there were 233 common lodging houses, that's 233 just in the neighborhood of Whitechapel for an estimated 8,350 homeless people. So uh, it, was, it was very much... There was definitely a, a deep sense of need and many people feeling it at this time. In 1885, the Criminal Law Amendment Act uh, closed a lot of brothels so uh, if you were a woman looking to engage in sex work, uh, a lodging house might work for the double bed for both work and sleep. Or you could do the single bed for sleep and then, you know, generally a uh, dark alley behind the pub, just wherever, you know, you, you could find a, a, a corner where you, you were less likely to be seen. And uh, basically the thing is that, that we see here and we see, we see it with last week's episode, me, myself. I said, you know, right at the top that one of the common threads was that they were all sex workers. And Chris, thankfully, uh, corrected me on that. And this book very much corrected me on that. (laughs) And so, you know, I apologize for just going along with the assumption that the rest of society and journalists and and ripperologists and everybody had gone with for, for many, many years. Pretty much everybody was like, if you live in a lodging house or if you take, you know, solace there... And especially if you're a victim of Jack the Ripper, automatically you're a sex worker. That was journalists, the middle class, the police, everybody. It was just it was just an automatic assumption. And it's not true. Uh, we talked about Sir Charles Warren last week. He is the uh, commissioner of the Metropolitan Police at this time. And he calculated that in the Whiteho- Whitechapel lodging houses, there were probably around 1,200 sex workers. So if, you know, you say a third of the 8,500 homeless are women, then that's still only 2,800, and so that's less than half doing sex work. So that assumption definitely does not bear true more than half of the time.
1: Man, I should have been a pimp. (laughs) Oh.
0: (laughs) Probably
2: not at that point. Largely because as down the social ladder as... Uh, sex workers were at that point pimps were even lower um, wow I'm okay with that <laughs> but one of the interesting things that uh, definitely once you sort of start to look into the lives is most people who engaged in sex work were not necessarily sex workers and there's a, a quote from a wonderful documentary in the 80s uh, 1988 I believe uh, that it was the odds are if your granny lived in Whitechapel to make ends meet, she probably performed sex work at least once. And it's, it's a sort of like, okay, yeah, I can sort of see that. But also, you also have to consider at that point, there is only one type of sex work. And if you think about sex work now, the multitude of areas, even before the internet, You had pictorial sex work, you had uh, BDSM sex work, you had a wider, much, much wider variety. So when you only have that one sort of narrow area, it gets a sort of a different sheen to it. Um, It is still maybe not likely, but certainly possible that all five of the victims were sex workers at one point or another. It's actually somewhat unlikely. Uh, I've gone back and forth on this over the years myself, even. Uh, but one of the interesting things I think here that is really key is all five of them would clearly have been assumed to have been sex workers because they did not follow the societal norms
0: oh yes we definitely see that in basically like the narrative thread of each of their their lives that's that's a really good point to to pull out and one thing I'd like to note is that it's whether or not they were sex workers or, or performed any sex work during their lives is not the problem. It's it's the police, it's the journalists, it's, it's everybody's lazy insistence on just automatically saying, well, all these women must fit into this particular category, whether or not they were. That is what the problem is. The police failed to see the victims as they truly were, and therefore they 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 failed right at right from the start at their investigation because they weren't pulling in information that might have let them make connections between the victims and therefore stop the Ripper, prevent more deaths, etc. So it's not that we're saying, well you know, if they weren't sex workers then they were less deserving of a hor- horrible, horrible murder No, it's not that at all. None of these women sex worker or not deserved what came to them. So I just wanted to state that right from the outset so we have that for you.
2: Absolutely, and the term that uh, doesn't necessarily fit as perfectly here, but it's certainly uh, one of the things that uh, my true crime research has focused on is the less dead. Uh, the idea that there are people, you know, in the hierarchy of murders uh, are at the top, and uh, African-American prostitutes, uh, indigenous women are at the bottom. Uh, and you see how, even how The media focuses on that and this is a very clear point of that at the point where really the modern media as we understand it was just beginning oh yeah definitely the less dead origins at the very beginning of modern media
0: yeah you really can that's that's amazing i hadn't really thought of it that way but yeah we see we see where it started it started right about here Let's talk about. Uh, first, I wanted before we dive into the the five canonical uh, victims, I would like to really quickly do the purported early victims and before and after the canonical five, just because they're they're brief. I didn't do too much of a deep dive into them because I had I had so much material. To be honest with the five, so okay. And I, I now, Chris, I know you are you are the the expert here. If I do some because you know one website. I think it was the uh, thing was JackTheRipper org had a smaller amount than Casebook listed, and so I kind of just went with what uh, jacktheripper.org org had, and then. Um, but if I miss any that you feel are important, please go ahead and break in and tell me.
2: I will gladly do so, but in my eyes, there's only one that's important, and I'll break in for that. Um.
0: <laughs>
3: Christy, real fast, I think you made a good choice, because Casebook.org had three murders that were similar, but not Jack the Ripper style. It was like they found torsos.
0: Yeah, and I am going to mention exactly. at least one torso, but yeah, I just felt like it was there were so many that it just didn't feel like they really belonged at all.
1: Are we blaming yeah, exactly. Hodel for this one, too? Sure. Okay. Of oh. <laughs> don't get me started. Don't even get me started. <laughs> Wait, do you think George Hodel
2: was a time traveler? <laughs> <laughs> Doctor Who is based on his life. It's so uh, there are so many clues. (laughs) So many.
0: Well, they really, uh, they really changed that narrative in the show. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) 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 So um, (laughs) on, I'll let us get our our vehicles out first. (laughs) All right.
2: He was a Doctor Who killed people. Go figure. Yep, there it is.
0: There you go. February twenty fifth, eighteen eighty eight. We have Annie Millwood. She's 38. She's a widow. She is attacked by an unknown man who stabs her in the legs and the lower abdomen. She goes to the infirmary. She does get treated. And then she's sent to a workhouse. Uh, we'll dive into that a little bit uh, later. And But then in early April, she dies quite suddenly. They just see her fall over and she's dead. So... Um, you do have some some abdomen work there, but it still it doesn't feel right to me. No, no,
2: definitely not. Uh, this was the mo was so different, including the knife type. Uh, and it's really not even plausible in my
0: eyes. Yeah, it just it just felt like they're they're it was kind of grasping at straws. So
1: now there was March. there was another woman named Martha Tabram, though. And it's... She's in
0: August. Yeah. got a couple more before her, but...
1: Yeah, but I mean, the wounds are really similar. So I don't think Annie Millwood was attacked by Jack the Ripper. I (laughs) I agree with Chris on this one. I do think Martha was attacked by the same person as Annie.
0: Mm -hmm. Ooh, that's an interesting point I hadn't thought of. Yeah, Yeah. because
1: they're... Yeah, they are so similar. The two of them are so similar that I think we have... Honestly, the, the situation that you have in Whitechapel at this time, it is a breeding ground for mental health issues. So I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of these cases uh, f- attributed to one person. I wouldn't be surprised if there weren't 10 or 15 people running around doing this. But whoever attacked Annie Millwood, Martha Tabron's attack was similar enough that I have to say these are victims of the same... Uh, victims of the same attacker.
0: Interesting point. So, March 28th, 1888, so about a month after Annie Millwood, you have Ada Wilson, she's 39, a dressmaker. She opened her door, and there, uh, when a man knocked, and he said, give me your money or I'll kill you, she said no. He stabbed her in the throat with a clasp knife. There was a deep wound. She, she, she did recover, um, and the general idea that sprung up around this particular attack was that she was a sex worker and that a client attacked her and she basically just, you know, fabricated a cover story. Mm
2: -hmm. I actually tend to think that whoever attacked uh, Annie Millwood uh, also attacked Ada Wilson, same type of knife, uh, and I'm fairly certain Scott's right. I think uh, Martha Tabram was also another victim of this same killer. Uh, the whole reason why this didn't become the first Ripper was these were respectable ladies of Whitechapel as opposed to presumed prostitutes
0: I see not too long after that because it was a very violent place on April 3rd uh, 1888 it was a bank holiday and Emma Smith she's a 45 year old widow uh, she was also said to be a sex worker and there was also some apparent alcoholism in there she likely, you know, as you do on bank holidays, went to a pub and then around twelve fifteen a.m. she was seen talking to a man in the street. She gets back to her lodging house between 4 and 5 a.m. Her face is bleeding. Part of her right ear is torn off and she had been hit in the stomach with a blunt instrument hard enough that some of her internal organs actually ruptured she said that several men had attacked her and robbed her and the youngest was 19 but she couldn't give much more description than that she went to the hospital fell into a coma and she died the following morning she gets brought up not necessarily because people think that she's a ripper victim but because at this point the police were like all right i think we need to open up a file on Whitechapel murders and she's the first one to go in they okay they oh go ahead amber
3: I was going to say, I got a little bit of a different report off of Book because they said that um, she was attacked, beaten, raped, and viciously jabbed with a blunt object into her vagina. Jesus.
0: I tried you to figure it. out from what they said what exactly the attack was, because they did say something about into the, you know... But it said it went into her like peritoneum or something like that, and I looked it up, and it's like part of like covers her abdomen. So I was like, yes, not per-
3: peritoneum is. But in case book it says they tore her perineum, which is the
1: it's the, the taint bunch
3: of skin between. It's the taint. Yeah. It's the taint.
1: Let's <laughs> call it what it is.
3: Everybody knows what it is. Yeah. Um, but it, then it after,
1: that, your, uh, your,
2: uh,
3: <laughs> after that, the the people that attacked her emptied her purse and stole everything she had in it, pretty much.
2: Yeah, this is the one, actually, that if any of the pre-canonical murders were Jack the Ripper, I would think it would be this one. And it's actually for a very strange theory that has been sort of bouncing around Ripperology for a while, that the idea that that the Ripper do did weren't necessarily to kill the person, but to explore the violation of the body. And that the initial Uh, were rapes were uh, beatings uh, in this idea of how can we explore that we don't understand and that's why it had to be a man and a woman and one of the really messed up things I think is that after going through this murder which is as close to a ripping as you can get without actually ripping he realized he had to go and actually start to explore the innards by removing them from the body And that's the only reason why I think this is one is a potential. The first Ripper murder feels like a fully formed M.O. I
1: mean, Walter Dew was was kind of this is the one that kind of caught Walter Dew's attention. Um, And he, he wrote in his book like he had trouble finding out exactly who Emma Smith was. He wrote her past was a closed book, even to her intimate friends. All she had ever told anyone about herself was that she was a widow who more than ten years before had left her husband and broken away from all her early associations. There was something about Emma Smith which suggested that there had been a time when the comforts of life had not been denied her. There was a touch of culture in her speech, unusual in her class. Once when Emma was asked why she had broken away so completely from her old life she replied a little wistfully. They would not understand now any more than they understood then, and I must live somehow.
0: Wow. Hmm.
2: That dude, man, <clears throat> he was trying to get something, that's what it comes down to. I think he had a thing for the ladies of the evening. He was a Charlie Sheen of his day.
1: Right. Hey. He's not, Charlie <laughs> Sheen ain't that bad of a guy.
3: <laughs> Tiger blood. Damn straight.
1: My...
0: <laughs> so august 6th 1888 another bank holiday uh just stay home on bank holidays in Whitechapel is is what we're saying here uh we get to martha tabram uh now she uh she was a sex worker and along with another purported sex worker they were drinking with a corporal and a private and the two couples separated you know for to do coupley things and at 5 a.m. Martha's body was found on a landing at an apartment building and it's kind of curious because granted it was a dark area it was hard to see but the superintendent of that apartment his wife passed by where the body would have been early that morning she was going to to grab some dinner twice she left and then she came back and she saw nothing And then around 3 a.m., another resident came home. He saw somebody sleeping in the stairwell, or what he assumed to be. But uh, it was likely, in fact, Martha Tabram. She had 39 stab wounds from her throat to her lower abdomen. And there were two different knives involved, a pocket knife. And then the other one they they theorized was a dagger or a bayonet of some sort. Yikes.
2: Yeah, and the key the key reason why I don't think this is necessarily a ripper murder is stabbings as opposed to cuttings or slicings and the difference there is actually one of psychologically, John Douglas would say a, uh, a stabber is merely trying to force the knife into someone uh, to violate them and to kill them literally But a slice is actually meant to do swift work to allow you to get done the work that you really want to do, such as removing the intestines, such as uh, just exiting the life quickly. So there's a, a big difference between a stab and a slice, and I really don't see the Ripper zigging so fast when he hasn't even really started to zag.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point, and I think that distinction between a stab and a slice is very important to make. So, but yes. Walter do he thought that she was a Ripper victim, um, and many, many others did. I'm, I'm with, I assume Chris and probably you guys. I know Scott. I'm not a Ripper victim. I'm saying no, not a Ripper victim. No,
1: I don't think so either. This case is
0: closed. <laughs> Absolutely. So those are all my pre-canonical uh, five victims that I want to discuss. Did I miss any that you think were important, Chris?
2: Uh, though, those are actually the most important um, another thing though key to understand is there were lots of murders in Whitechapel there were some murders in Spitalfields uh, one thing that is actually somewhat lost to history are the men who were murdered during this time because there were quite a few there were also quite a few women who just disappeared and this is the same thing that allowed uh, H.H. Holmes to operate so long, uh, so many others, uh, is that at this point, women, particularly women of the lower economic classes, could easily and often did easily disappear.
0: Yeah, it seems like it was it was easy to disappear and it was also easy we, we're going to see some, you know, with with Emma Smith, nobody really knew who she was or where she came from, and we're going to see what another one of the or, or one of the canonical five that we have a, a similar situation, that identity was kind of a, a fungible thing and also uh, your very existence was a fungible thing. You could be there one day and gone the next and it never gets reported, especially if you're in the more vulnerable classes of society, so and men included, you know, plenty of mm-hmm. Men were were destitute as well. Well, and the thing with these
3: people just borrowing beds for a night at a time, I mean, if you wouldn't see them for a while, you wouldn't realize
0: they were missing because maybe they went to a different workhouse. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That definitely, you know, like, and and they would hop from workhouse to workhouse, from lodging house to lodging house. Sometimes they would rotate between the two of those and also sleeping rough, you know. So it was just expected that, you know, people would come and go and you wouldn't. Yeah, you're right. You wouldn't think anything of it.
3: Yeah, it could be weeks before you're like, hey, where's my friend Mary?
0: Like, I haven't seen her around. Have you seen her? No? Exactly. Word. So, okay, the purported victims after the Canonical Five that sometimes were uh, attached to Jack the Ripper on December 20th, 1888. So this is after uh, the the final uh, melee we see. uh, Rose Milet, forty-six. Uh, Earlier the previous evening, she had been seen with two sailors, one who, quote, looked like a Yankee, end quote. And there appeared to be, it looked like there might be a disagreement of some kind going on. Next, she was seen at 2 30 a.m. with two men outside a pub, and she was drunk. At 4 30 a.m., her body was found. It was still warm. But it was called a suicide because they, at the moment, couldn't see any evidence of foul play. They found that in the post-mortem examination, some blood around her nostrils, an abrasion on her face, and especially a mark on her neck that was said to be caused by a cord. And the cause of death was ruled strangulation. The papers were really, it was the journalists here, they were, they were clutching at every straw they could find to try to sell those papers and they needed more jack the ripper victims so here they were like well there we go but it's really unlikely
1: uh, rose Millet, i find her fascinating quite honestly because even though we call her rose Millet, that's probably not her name they they uh, whenever they do, was doing the inquest they couldn't find her real name. She had gone by Fair Clara, Catherine Millet, Alice Downey, Alice Down, Elizabeth Davis. Elizabeth Milet, uh was just kind of going like, oh, that's the name most people knew her by. Okay.
2: Yeah, and of course, the the police believing that she had accidentally killed herself when her collar, because she was drunk, and her collar caught, and she choked herself to death. Uh this is actually one of the ones that I'm interested in. One, not because the strangulation is completely out of the question, honestly. Uh, It is absolutely not what the Ripper was trying to do, but it's fascinating because this is 100% the police in denial that there are still going to be murders that they cannot expect, so they're going to blame it on uh, drunken stupor. Again, tying uh, someone's death, blaming the victim. They're drunk, so obviously they deserve to die by catching their collar
0: yeah there you go there you have it a lot of blaming the victim everywhere you go here on July 17th 1889 we have Alice McKenzie she's 45 she's said to be a sex worker Uh, her body is found by a police constable near a lamppost her skirt was pulled up so there was that there was a wound sort of in a zigzag pattern from under her left breast down to her navel it was fairly superficial So, I. I, What caused her death? If it was just a superficial wound, you know, why'd she die? Why'd she die?
1: Obviously, rickets.
0: (laughs) I feel like
1: like any death, like the uh, a lot of the diseases that came by was just unexplained deaths. What did this person die from? Uh, the doolings. Put it down. (laughs) What, what's the Duelings? Well, everything you see here, that's the Duelings. It's a horrible disease. There's a knife sticking out of her forehead. That's one of the symptoms. It's...
2: <laughs> she has the Duelings. One of the other things is that, in general, people in Whitechapel were sick. Uh, they, there was always... There was cholera outbreaks. There were always some sort of illness going around. Uh, and... They also didn't wear masks, so... uh, Big issue that it doesn't really surprise me that someone who's put through a trauma, their body just gives out. I could totally see that. And this one has zero chance of being a ripper killing just because it's... I think if it was a real murder, or an intended murder that ended up exacerbating something else... It was because of a... Per- this is definitely a more personal... That was then someone trying to say, oh, I'll try to pin this on the river,
0: Yeah, and of course the press decided to do that. Law enforcement officials, they were really, you know... It, there was this serious divide. It was like, well, half of them think it is, and half of them think it isn't. And I'm with the ones that think it isn't, obviously. Then on September 10th, 1889, I am going to mention the Pynchon Street torso, mainly just because Mm -hmm. there's a quote from the police commissioner at the time that got me. So that's really my excuse. Um, It was the trunk of a female missing the head and legs that was found around 520 a.m. in a railway arch blood pretty much on the scene and uh, the estimated time of death was about 36 hours or more before the the torso was found so she would have been murdered on September 8th which was the anniversary of Annie Chapman's murder and also the body was found nearish the Liz Stride murder scene so that sort of raised some hackles and Police Commissioner Monroe made this report which got me quote Although the body was placed in the arch on Tuesday night, the murder... Parentheses. And although there is not yet before me proof of the cause of death, I assume that there has been a murder... And parentheses. ...was not committed <laughs> there nor then. No, Commissioner Monroe, people's bodies just completely fall apart, like like legs just falling right off, head just topples down all the time.
1: Absolutely. This, it's called yeah, the this Pension mur- Street Rickets. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> this murder is one. 100% caused by the penny press. Bear with me. Do tell. This work. Do tell. <laughs> um, because we're seeing, when you see an explosion in true crime, and at the time the penny press was full of true crime rags, the Police Gazette being the most famous, but there are dozens of them around the world. It makes people realize that they have to get smarter because the stories in there are describing how police are catching people is you see people coming up with new ways to prevent identification the hardest thing to identify in the pre-20th century period is just the torso obvious scar unless there is some sort of record it is almost impossible at that time to identify a torso so you see that here you see that in the u.s during the second the explosion of the 1920s you start to see torso murders You see uh, in the explosion of the 1950s, things like uh, Hush, Hush and Confidential and all that. You see the explosion in serial killers who are using new methodologies that uh, expose less of themselves. Uh, The Zodiac is a great example. Uh, We are about to see an explosion of serial killers who grew up listening to true crime podcasts.
0: (laughs) Um, You're welcome, world.
2: (laughs) So, but yeah, someone should really do a podcast about looking at historical methods of detection and how that gets reported. Hmm. A a wild. What an idea, Chris. Because I would listen to something called I don't know uh, detectives by the decade.
0: That's a great title. (laughs) Yeah, I would
2: go and subscribe to that before it's even out. Maybe sometime it'll just pop up.
3: Thank you. Thank you, Chris. That was awesome. Uh, about, about Chris wins extra ass-kissing points absolutely. for this
1: episode. <laughs> about, about four or five years ago, I made a little video and put it up on YouTube. It was about the Long Island serial killer. Oh, my God. Right? So, And they never caught the Long Island serial killer. It's fairly recent. He's still out there. And I went back after three or four months and looked at it and I saw there was 35 views. Like I said, not a popular video. But then it kind of hit me. One out of the 35 people that watch this is probably the killer.
2: Dun, dun, dun!
1: And it gave me the fucking creeps.
2: Okay, that was a good ad because it could (laughs) have been you. No. Because who else would want to make that video?
1: Well, it was I was doing a channel uh, on YouTube called Strange Pathways. It was all about like unsolved crime and ghosts and UFOs. So I, I realized at the time I didn't have a lot about like unsolved serial killers, so I put one up. You've got everything wrapped up in a neat little bag. And that bag has body parts in it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean Hard. I mean maybe. <laughs> Allegedly,
2: (laughs) (laughs) hey, it's the rails. It's over there.
0: (laughs) All right, so Chris, did I miss any in the uh, the aftermath of the canonical five that you think are important?
2: No, those are really the really key ones, and you know, it's because you could talk about London Murders forever, Uh, but uh, I mean, who doesn't want to? (laughs) But yeah, it's it was a. Very dangerous part of London. It was a very dangerous time. They were seeing economic depression at the same time as an economic boom. It was a time of inequity. It was the best of times. It was fairly poor times.
0: (laughs) I was wondering if you were going to do that. (laughs) (laughs) A tale of two cities, us. (laughs) All right. So let's. What tale of two cities? (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, who wrote that? I can't I can't I think it was a book, maybe, or a movie? I don't know. Was that the sequel to American Psycho? <laughs> oh yes, that's what it was. No,
1: yeah. you guys, you guys have got it wrong. It's the title to a porno, but the last word isn't cities, it's nevermind.
3: <laughs> Alright, I've seen that one.
1: Oh of course haven't, you have. haven't we all? It's a classic. <laughs>
0: So let's dive into the canonical five. We are going to start, of course, with the very first. Mary Ann Nichols, a.k.a. Polly. Born Mary Ann Walker on August 26th, 1845. Her parents were Caroline and Edward Walker. Now, Edward was a blacksmith. He made locks and then it was it, he probably ended up making typeface because they lived near... Fleet Street, which was known as the Street of Ink. This was newspaper land right here. He might have made as much as six shillings and six pence a day at the most. As the middle child of three, she was actually sent to school until the age of 15, which is not the norm and could read and and write. A lot of people could read but not write. You know, you definitely learned to read before writing, so they maybe got that foundation but never built the house. Uh, due to, you know, life circumstances. So uh, the, this family still, they, they lived in pretty poor conditions. Uh, generally, a family would live in one room that was like, you know, eight by eight feet or 10 by eight feet uh, with a really low ceiling and, you know, slept in the same bed. This would cost about four shillings a week. And as you can imagine, you know, as as was mentioned earlier, sickness was just everywhere. There was filthy water, there was no waste system, it was just, hey, just chuck that chamber pot into the street and the rain will get it eventually.
1: Yay. Oh, the
2: summers
0: were not fun. Oh, I bet. Yeah. So November 1852, Polly is seven when tuberculosis takes uh, her mother from her uh, there's that illness, and we're gonna we're gonna see it a lot here. Edward Senior, he likely brought in Caroline's sister Mary Webb to help him handle the household because, obviously, you know the he seems like he was a, a decent father, but obviously that wasn't the man's job back then in any way, shape, or form. So you gotta have a woman doing that. Now, speaking of, since her mother had passed, Polly was pretty much expected to be the woman of the household. So rather than go out and get a job in the serving class, as many would do in their teen years, many young women, she stayed uh, in the household and it helped out. And But she was still, like I said, kept in school, probably. That was, that was Edwards doing there because she was very, very close to him. Uh, she married at age 18 a printer named William Nichols, this was 1864. He was just a couple years older than her, 21 or 22. And after that, fun times, the whole family lived together, probably in just, uh, you know, two to three rooms. So that's that honeymoon will end real quick. <laughs> that sounds like hell. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. I don't know how people did it. I don't know mm. how people did it.
1: They didn't. I mean, it drove some of them to murder, like we've said.
0: True. Uh, they had their first child in December of that same year. Uh, who The child died after less than two years. And then along came Edward John in July 1866 and George Percy in July 1868. Alice Esther in December 1870. And did anybody notice that I'm naming off all of these birth months and they're all December and July? Hmm. hmm. It's very strange. I I can't quite figure out the reasoning behind it.
3: Probably when their birthdays are or something. They they only screw twice a year.
0: Well, she was an August baby. Um, And I don't think I have their wedding date. So I don't necessarily know if it was an anniversary thing. um, Or even if people cared about anniversaries. But but yeah. That would be what? Like October and March? Around about, yeah, I think. So the Halloween and the Saint Patrick's Day screwings. There you go.
1: Yay! I,
3: <laughs> I mean, Max was a Saint Patty's Day baby, pretty much. So,
0: yeah, it, it could happen. Nice to know, Amber. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Now, in 1876, the Nichols are actually approved to live in this really innovative new uh, set of apartment buildings. This American financier, George Peabody, had set out to do this charity project and residents had to be, quote, the most deserving of the working poor, end quote. And it was quite a process. You had to get your employer to give you what was essentially a letter of reference. You had to have a home visit. You had to, They looked at your income, of course. And you had to have proof that you had a smallpox vaccine.
3: You know what? I just lied. Max was a Halloween baby. I was mixing them up. Max was a Halloween baby. <laughs>
1: <laughs> at least you remember your kids' names. Whatever.
3: <laughs> it took me a minute. I was like, that doesn't sound right.
1: You don't have to worry about the day that you purchased the assembly kit. <laughs> <laughs> All babies are just IKEA projects. We know that. <laughs>
0: yeah. Now this apartment building each apartment would have four rooms which is a freaking bonanza of rooms in this period of time for for a less fortunate family with a modern kitchen there was a in the attic of the building there was a space where you could do laundry where they had both tubs and places where you could dry your laundry so you're not like drying it along with your you know coal stove and mm, yeah that that smells that smells Look at Mr. Uh,
1: Fancy Fancy, who only has to share his bed with four other people. Here's your crown, my highness.
0: (laughs) And, and, and Mr. Fancy Fancy only had to share a bathroom with one other apartment.
1: Ooh. Someone's invested their money well.
0: There was also on the ground floor a bath with gas-heated water. Hot water, guys. Amazing. But the seriously, op- this op- must have op- seemed like paradise.
1: The next, t- the next thing you're going to tell me is that they had food to eat. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we really take our modern conveniences for granted. Um, and then they had another son in December, of course, 1878. Of course, this was Henry Alfred. I know the brain just automatically looks for patterns, but this was a pattern that just drove me bonkers. So But Difficulties started between William and Polly And as in all relationships That are going badly What the problem was Depends on who you ask Or may have been really a combination Of what both of them were saying You had William saying Well she's drinking a whole bunch And you had Polly saying Well he's screwing the neighbor girl Rosetta Walls uh, Who was 21 while Polly was 33 And so you know Really, chicken or egg. Um, it, 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 I don't think it really, honestly, matters. But that didn't help their marriage at all. And then on, she she would she would leave temporarily, but always have to go back for the kids. But on March twenty ninth, eighteen eighty, the day after Easter, she just left for good, uh, and she left the kids with him as well. Good Damn. mom. Damn. Yeah, it's a little. It's not great mothering. Hmm. I thought somebody else had something to say.
1: No, no, no. I'm just like I'm just being, just being nasty. Like how disposable children were at the time.
3: They really were, though. I mean, because oh, like you. if you had eight of them and three of them died, it's fine. Like that's the way they, they acted for this stuff. Let's just have more. It's whatever.
0: You didn't have contraception either, at least the, in the the lower classes didn't have knowledge of contraception even though it existed and like the middle and upper classes were aware of it. So that wasn't an option and the, the more kids you have, the more mouths to feed. Yeah, and you were in that
2: period where you didn't need to have kids to work the land so much anymore but you weren't at the point where people weren't having as many kids because they had settled into a urban lifestyle. And so that sort of brackish slaw there uh is really a fascinating time where you get the worst of both possible worlds
0: oh yeah absolutely that's a good point yeah that that this just kind of like a this carryover from the more agrarian days that you know people weren't quite at the point where they were like wait we can stop after seven <sighs> who knew <laughs> so uh william and rosetta took up together so i guess he probably was screwing the neighbor girl and she even took his last name she had a child with him she took on the role of mother to the other children so even if she was the other woman it seems like she was um good enough to you know take care of the kids uh and polly ended up at the lambeth union workhouse now workhouse's are another one of those Victorian times things where the indigent went or people who had some sort of life-changing misfortune, people who were sick, they were brought in, they were uh, given gender-appropriate work, they were given the bare minimum of food, they had a uniform they had to wear that was from the workhouse, as we, we saw in last week's episode, and they had to sleep in uh, gender-segregated dorms. And this even, this applied to entire families as well. You know, if you have the main breadwinner losing his job, that could send a whole family to the workhouse and the children were only allowed to stay with their mother if they were under seven. If if a male child was over the age of seven, then he was sent to the, the male dormitories. And there was a huge stigma with these... People would go to great lengths, including the taking up of sex work, to not go to the workhouse. Because once you did that, you were no longer considered a respectable member of society. And so it was hard. It was once you get cast down into that position, it's really hard to claw your way back up, you know.
1: Indeed. Indeed. It's hard to claw your way back up anyway.
0: That is very true. Yeah. 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 It's it's. It's still, a, a part of our society that you know the the people who have it the worst have the hardest time getting back up on their feet. So.
1: Nonsense! I started this company with my own blood, sweat, tears, and a five million dollar loan from my dad. This- <laughs>
0: All right. <laughs> yep. Bootstraps. It is. Mm-hmm. So she was uh, examined and and then kind of interrogated by the relieving officer, who would decide what kind of relief applicants were given you you had you know the the inside relief of going to the workhouse you had potentially she could get maintenance from her husband you also had some outside charities she ended up they judged that she was to be given weekly maintenance from her husband of five shillings and generally when they did this they were like all right we'll give her a little bit not enough enough to live on really but, you know, enough to contribute to a household, like, say, that of the family she came from, so she can go back to her parents or whatever, or a sibling. And She did not do that. Which, essentially, a woman living on her own in this society was, it's not that it was unheard of, but it was absolutely made you an outsider. It made you a complete outcast. So William then eventually hired a private investigator to follow Polly and he wanted to find out if she was living with another man because that would give him cause to terminate her maintenance. He did manage to do this in 1882. She was apparently, according to his investigator, living with a George Crawshaw. Uh, At the time, the census listed him as a scavenger and her as a laundry worker. And so, yes, she had her maintenance taken away and that pretty much left her destitute, which if she lived with a. The argument goes that if she was living with this man and the lack of her maintenance left her destitute, well, it shouldn't have. So was she actually living with the man or not? We don't actually know.
1: That's what I'm going to put on my uh, taxes next year. Occupation scavenger. (laughs)
0: <laughs>
1: Absolutely, <laughs> yes. I insist you pronounce it Scavenger.
0: <laughs> scavenger. <laughs> in 1882 and 83, she's basically in and out of the workhouse. It's just a, it's just a pattern. Get in, get out. Uh, finally, she stays with her brother and his five kids for a little while, but in 1884, she leaves and goes to stay with a widower blacksmith who has five kids. His name is Thomas Stuart Drew, at this point, she is no longer speaking to her father, and he didn't even see her again until 1886. The occasion that brought them sort of together at this moment was when her brother died after an accident in which he was trying to put out a kerosene lamp, and it exploded. Damn. Hey. Yeah. Yeah. Life was so dangerous. Jesus. Jesus.
2: I'm not doing anything. Uh, anymore. I, I'm just going to sit here all day uh, on my laptop, just looking at nothing. Wait. Okay. Go
1: on. Here, here's, the, here's the thing, though, Chris. Uh, as somebody who has gone through periods of depression, probably the most dangerous thing you can do for yourself is nothing. Doing I mean, nothing? Yeah. yeah, doing nothing is incredibly dangerous.
3: You can tell by the increase of suicide rates during the quarantine. Yeah, that's true.
1: Yeah, that is true.
3: And by the drinking.
0: Oh, I can vouch for that. <laughs> I, can, I can I can double that vouch. <laughs> so when Polly saw her father, uh, he basically said that she looked respectable. You know, he didn't think that her, her fortunes had gone down that much. But uh, less than six months later... She and Thomas were dunzo, and then he he ended up marrying another woman, like, a month later. So, I mean, we really... Marriage and relationships, but I think a lot of the times back then, it was pretty much... As it has been through much, much of history, it was convenience. You know, it was, who can I marry? Well, he couldn't marry Polly, because she was technically still married. So he needed a single woman, so... And um, then she's back in the workhouse. She ends up actually uh, in service. So an, an attempt to to rise above the workhouse. That was usually the workhouse would send over women to be free or cheap household labor to like, you know, middle class-ish households in uh, December of 86. That didn't last. And by the following May, she's back out on the street again. And essentially at this point, she is a vagrant. She's going back and forth between the lodging house um sleeping rough and also they had this sort of in between the lodging house and the workhouse they had the casual house which was like a short term workhouse it was like okay you can stay two nights in between you have to work for your your stay um but it was also even worse than the the lodging house and also prevented people from finding more work because after you left you weren't when you left on the, your final morning, you weren't allowed to leave until it was too late to go out and find work. So it was like this, you're keeping people trapped in this fucking cycle, don't you know?
2: As same as it ever was, every, every era has this same path. Uh, and it's, it's incredibly sad. But at the same time, this is so much of an improvement over what was before it. And because at that point, if you didn't have a way of supporting yourself, you just died. Um, and you know, you sleeping rough in a city is so much better than sleeping rough in the country. <laughs> so all these things that you know, it does sort of become. We tend to look back at it and say how barbaric, but at the same time, it's like, well, it was
0: progress. Yeah, I know. It didn't. It didn't doesn't look like it from where we stand, but I'm sure that some people in that area looked at it and they were like, yeah, things are definitely better than they were. No more fire whippings? Excellent! <laughs> yes! Now, on October 24th, she's actually arrested along with nine others. The police call her, quote, the worst woman in the square, end quote. She is released, but she's sent to the workhouse, and then what follows is more bouncing around. The rough sleeping the workhouse the casual house etc in may 1888 uh, she is in the workhouse and she's sent back into service Uh, she is acting as a maid for a couple in their 60s with a spinster niece and by spinster i mean she's in her 20s and she actually at that time wrote to her father and told him that she was doing all right but that one didn't last long either. By July, she was back at a, um, out, and in early August, she was direct to a lodging house. She became friends with a woman named Ellen Holland. I might have said Emily Holland in the last episode, but we know how names get confused, so it could go either way. It is Emily. Um, well, um, Wait, Emily actually... Emily Holland. That is um, perhaps an error in Rubenhold's book then, but just a small one. Uh, Holland described her as, quote... Melancholy. She kept herself to herself as if some trouble was weighing upon her mind. Uh, and Holland was like, No, she doesn't really have any male friends. She just, you know, she, she drinks like a lot, but she, you know, like, not even any male friends, which we know that, you know, is, uh, I'm sure, a euphemism. So we have somebody who is the only friend of hers that we really know of, or closest, probably, person to her, um, as close as you can get to someone who is, you know, keeps herself to herself. And yeah, she. So I, I think that's that's a pretty definitive statement there. Um, she is turned out of the lodging house on August twenty fourth, and then she does some more. Uh, she's you know, vagrancy again. Then at twelve thirty a.m. on August thirty first, she is drinking at the frying pan, and we know what happens next.
1: Yeah, a hangover. Drinking.
2: Drinking really ruined her life Um I love the fact that She got her Her last job in service With a couple who were teetotalers And she was an alcoholic Uh This is a story that plays out even today Uh Considering uh, one of my friends Wonderful human being Um but definitely an alcoholic Got a job on a cruise ship Uh thing you cannot do if you work on a cruise ship is drink. So, didn't work out. Happens all the time. Polly Nichols is a sad sad, sad case. Um, Had descendants, uh, had children who lived into the 30s. Had grandchildren who I believe at least one of them met her. Uh, who lived into the 60s so long life and that's one thing we tend to forget and something that is never focused on uh, in the uh, ripperology department is most of these women had offspring who lived beyond their lifespans and almost none of them and none that I could think of off the top of my head did anything near making this their calling, to find who murdered their parent.
0: Damn. Yeah, um, wow.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's something that's always sort of bothered me. and it's Because if you think, we, we live in the golden age of true crime, and if you think of every podcast that's been found, formed by uh, the son or daughter of someone who was a murderer, a friend, someone who just lived in their same town, and I can't believe at this point at least one of them didn't, like, take it up as their cause, but apparently not. Wow. That sucks.
1: Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. That sucks.
2: <laughs> <laughs> my kids are gonna avenge me. <laughs> <laughs> but, like,
3: I want I want my kids to avenge me if anything would happen. Like, I'd be horribly disappointed if, like, none of them w- w- got into, like, or anything like that to to try to avenge my death.
1: I'd be horribly surprised if one of them wasn't the perpetrator of your death.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You shut your face. (laughs) (laughs) Uh. Some people who should have also shut their face were the police, because this is where this fucking sex worker, sorry, uh, narrative begins. She was a vagrant, and they are automatically like, well, she must have been a sex worker, and nothing anyone who knew her said would lead you to that conclusion. It was right from the start, their assumption. In fact, in fact, she preferred the lodging houses that were women only. Mm
2: -hmm. There is slight, uh, conjecture that is reasonable. Uh, of course, the famous words that she uttered, uh, I'll have my DOS money soon, look at the jolly bonnet I've got. Uh, that would lean towards that. But then again, that could mean just about anything. You know, I cannot count the
1: number of times that I've looked you know, over at my buddy Jerome and said, I'm going to quit this job and just suck dick for a living. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm going to actually do it. (laughs) I'm just saying, I've said shit like that.
3: I think you've said things like that to me at work, actually. Yeah, (laughs) yeah,
1: I think I have.
0: And also, she had a really interesting point by Rubenhold was that she had taken with her when she left that last uh, stint in service with the couple. They had given her some, likely given her some clothing. She had taken it with her when she left. Mm -hmm. See what a jolly bonnet I've got now. Could have been I'm gonna go pawn it. You know. That's true, but it was late at night. (laughs) But she was also drunk. (laughs) We get we get such ideas when we're drunk late at night.
2: Uh, yeah, and that's one of the things that will play out in the suspects portion more. But almost all the victims were, if not alcoholics, frequent drinkers. And there's also the theory that there is a watering hole that they all did tend to drink at, the Ten Bells. Ooh. Ooh. So,
0: there's that is interesting. <laughs> Ooh, yes. Um, now, the funeral... The police did try to keep it secret they wanted to avoid any crowds but people saw the hearse you had many many people some say thousands i feel like that might be an exaggeration because remember this was the first murder and it's not like there weren't murders in Whitechapel ever before that but okay and they were hoping for a glimpse of the coffin and i kept on seeing the coffin and the plate and for the longest time i couldn't figure out what the plate meant because i was like do they mean like the you know, a plaque or something, but that doesn't go on until after. No, it would be the plate on, as far as I can tell, the plate on the coffin with, you know, her name, dates on it, I guess. I'm assuming. Uh, I also uh,
2: meant a window. Uh, A lot of coffins had windows back in the day uh, that would have been made of plate glass.
0: Oh, wow. That's kind (laughs) of... Exactly. That was the word I was going for. (laughs) never finished my sandwich there. (laughs) <laughs> these
2: are a people who take pictures of dead people.
0: A lot of <laughs> time a-, a lot of
1: time though these people the only photo they ever had in their life was after they were dead.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean a lot of these women we don't have images of them except for the one taken in the mortuary. I know and
1: a lot of times it's just sketches. It's not one of the canonical 5. It, it's one of the uh it's one of the uh the pre victims. Uh, But all we have is a sketch of her on Wikipedia. Let me see if I can figure out which one it is. Um, It's one of the ones we talked about today. But the sketch of her—it doesn't look female at all. It looks like Anderson Cooper trying to divide eight hundred and seventy-two by thirteen in his head.
0: Oh, I saw that one. (laughs) You (laughs) know know exactly. Yeah, (laughs) right. (laughs) All right, we we gotta we gotta plow on, or else this is gonna be six hours long.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'll shut up now.
0: (laughs) No, 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 (laughs) it's It's plowing. No, I was just I was just saying like we can Oh god. <laughs> oh, god. <laughs> no, I was just saying like yeah, it's there's there's so much. It was, <laughs> it's a lot. Um I'm grateful for all the information, but I'm also like buried underneath it. Uh speaking of buried, um she was buried <laughs> at the City of London Cemetery. Mourners were her father and two of her children. Apparently her husband did not come. The body is not there, but there is a plaque. People will go there and they'll leave flowers and they'll also leave coins so she can have her four pence for the lodging house.
1: My fucking heart.
0: Yeah, that is the saddest fucking thing I've heard all day.
3: Am Um, I the only one that was like, if I was one of her friends, I would go there every night and take the money for the lodging house.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, And people, I think (laughs) it does really. Yes, yes. Um, She was uh, at the time of her death. She was forty-three. So, remember that number. Yes. <laughs> Annie Chapman is the next murder. She is born September 1841. Her father is George Smith. Uh, he's actually in the household cavalry of the royal family. Uh, her mother is Ruth Chapman, a servant, uh, who's what's known as a dolly mop, which is basically a soldier's woman. And uh, thank you, Brits, for that. Beautiful phrase. <laughs> I got me a dolly mop. <laughs> Sorry.
1: <laughs> Just wait until I get my danger noodle on. Cause me and me wife, we're gonna go out to the fives and tens and have some PP fiction fun time.
2: <laughs> if that's not the so title he, for the episode, I don't know what you.
0: be <laughs> <laughs> I, we'll Danger there. Noodle. <laughs> Um, he did, uh, George did marry Ruth in 1842, uh, but uh, they actually were nice enough to backdate that shit to 1840 so that uh, their, their daughter Annie would be legitimate. Uh, they essentially for a while at the beginning, they would live in the barracks with the other, other soldiers and their women in basically a, a communal room, which, again, that sounds horrible.
1: Doesn't sound yeah. pleasant.
0: No, but by 1848, they got an allowance to live off barracks and uh, they had six children in total. Now, these kids, they would actually, they'd get a a pretty good education at the regimental school. You know, obviously education, not really a universal thing uh, in this, in that day and age. In 1854, what was a universal thing was illness. They were living in a house with two other families. Scarlet fever struck the home This is holy shit. Three children um, of this family aged five, three, and five months fell victim, and then uh, that was scarlet fever. The eldest son, George, got typhus, and he died at age 12, and that was all over the course of three weeks. Wow.
1: Fuck.
0: Yeah. That would just decimate anyone. Um, the family had three more girls over the next seven years. By 1861, Annie was in service as a housemaid working for an architect and his brother, who was a retired stockbroker. She might have already been in service before that. Standard age was around 15, 16. You go into service, but that's the records that we have. And this was also likely when, here's here's that pattern cropping up, Likely when she started drinking, there wasn't a lot of clean water. So, I guess, you know, instead of clean water, you, you give your workers beer. Um, and also, in practically every medicine you could find, there was alcohol. So, you know, you get a headache, get something with some alcohol, and maybe some opium, you know? <laughs> so, I think it probably pretty much everybody was an alcoholic, just if if they had a migraine.
2: And part of the reason for this also was the methodologies they used for making beer is that uh, beer was typically either homemade or it was very uh, much, much lower alcohol content. When you start to mechanize the systems, when you start to standardize it, your amount of alcohol increases greatly. So now you're definitely, you know, what you used to drink was, you know, Oh, four or five pints a day. That's fine. Uh, nowadays it's, you know, now then it was a big deal also the uh, availability of large amounts of gin very cheap did not help
0: yeah, I bet um, it seems like maybe her father might have there were rumors that he drank uh, but nothing concrete he had become now I'm gonna I'm gonna pronounce this the way they, they do on Downton Abbey because that feels like the best source of information he became a valet which yep. we we would all pronounce Frenchly valet, but uh, he became a valet. And he worked for some, some pretty important men before, uh, in 1863, he cut his own throat and died. And the cause was cited as temporary insanity. The description of this incident felt like there was definitely room for more investigation, I felt. But it, it just you... felt like... It wasn't definite, and they were rushing to judgment because they had to get on with other things.
2: Are you saying it was potentially murder?
0: I am, in fact, saying it was potentially.
2: I gotta believe
1: yeah, the. Cor- nah. I gotta believe the. Totally right. I gotta believe the coroner's report. Whenever it says, "Hey, this guy had a case of the silver gigamagoose."
0: <laughs> Keep them coming, Scott. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So Ruth uh, got a little bit of, of money after this and she invested it in a house that they leased. She would take in lodgers and that's when John Chapman came along. He had the same name as Ruth's maiden name, but it was apparently no relation. He was a private uh, coach driver and he married Annie in 1869. They had two daughters over the next four years and he actually stayed this one, guys, this this whole kind of story—it's definitely a, a rise that could have gone further, and then a, a plummet downward. Just to warn you ahead of time, he snagged a position as the head coachman for this rich guy—seriously rich gentleman—who had made money in copper mining. Uh, this was in 1879. They got a three-bedroom cottage right across from the stables on the estate. I mean, it was—they were very. Close to the upper echelons of society, they would be able to like watch from their windows as royalty came for various events. I mean, it was definitely, a, it was definitely a rise in fortunes. Um, they had all told seven children, but these children were plagued by issues that, now that we look back, may have been caused by her drinking. Um, One had seizures, one likely had fetal alcohol syndrome, one had paralysis, and four died anywhere between one day old and 11 weeks old. Um, I would just like to state that we, (laughs) I can look back, um, we've been watching Cheers during the the quarantine, and there is an episode, and this is like late, mid to late 80s. Carla is is pregnant, and she's just uh, hanging out with her friends at the bar. Having a beer, just grabs a pitcher, pours another one, and I was just like, "Holy shit, that was the late '80s." Yep, yep. That's why it, we're there, all messed up.
4: Yeah, mm-hmm. there
0: was. It's not like they didn't know there had been some knowledge, like at least like one study that, or you know, published publication that said you know drinking causes issues with infant mortality. But I don't think it was widespread knowledge. Certainly not like it is now. But. Uh, the drinking continued. Her sisters all—they went the teetotaler route. They signed an abstinence pledge, but you know, not the kind you sign in a red state. Um, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> she, she did as well. They got her to sign it multiple times, but it never really took. And the the general theory is just, she was beaten down by life. You know, like losing so many of her siblings at such a young age and everything and her father's death and everything just you know all those children dying as well she was surrounded by death all the time I mean I drink now but I I drink you know (laughs) um and it's likely that when her eldest daughter got sick at age 12 um she was probably going to the bottle for some comfort And she wasn't even around when uh, her daughter died in November 1882. So, again, death. Uh, She was taken to the sanatorium a few weeks later by her sister, purportedly of her own free will. She spent about a year there, seemed to do pretty well. But uh, when she got out, it was was several months, but she did fall off the wagon. And this was pretty much the, the turning point where... John's boss was like, "All right, you gotta ditch the drunk wife or ditch your job. You got two. You got two choices. Pick one." And he was like, "Well, I need the money." So they did separate. Uh, he gave her maintenance of ten shillings a week. She tried living with her family, but you got and, and like we, it was exactly like the case with Polly. You've got an alcoholic. You've got tea toddlers, and this is not a great sitcom, you know. <laughs> I disagree. Okay, that it sounds I hilarious. I
2: was you're very much off the mark there.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, this episode of Old Timey Crimey is sponsored by Best Fiends. We love true crime, don't we, guys? We do. What else do we love? <laughs> we love Best Fiends. Yes, we do. Okay, it's time. What level are we on? I'm actually, I have to look, because I'm not 100% sure. I should have given you guys a little bit more prep time. I know, I was not prepared. 420? (laughs) 1302. Ooh, you're creeping up on me, I'm at 1547. Uh, I'm never going to catch you. (laughs) (laughs) We love playing Best Fiends when we need a break, a refresher, something that engages your brain, but also isn't, you know, a lot of death and destruction. There is that. I love hitting the slugs.
1: I thought they were just sleeping.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Scott's been under an illusion all along. So engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. She then hooks up with a guy named Jack Civy uh, Civi, Civi. Uh, does anyone want to guess what he makes? CV?
1: Uh TVs? No, that's too early. Um, CBD.
0: He makes sieves. Damn it! They call him what he makes, so that would be like, Hi, I'm Christy Podcasty.
1: And, uh, what do you, how do you do that? Sir? Uh, you see this here pot? Uh, we take it out back and shoot it with a shotgun. Boom. It's a very simple <laughs> yeah. process. And uh, here we go. <laughs> Done.
0: $50. Uh, they lived for a while on Dorset Street, which in the 1890s, so not yet, but it was probably still pretty bad, was named, quote, the worst street in London, end quote. And I'm sure there was lots of competition in that day and age for that particular type in uh 1884 or by 1884 they end up in um Whitechapel. and then in 1886 john dies at age 45 of uh cirrhosis of the liver and dropsy so he too fell uh victim to the bottle and she actually did hike all the way out there like it was like a two-day walk to see him before he died um well she saw him and then left she didn't stick around for the death uh Annie's friend, Amelia, would say that, quote, "...after the death of her husband, she seemed to give way altogether," end quote. And sure enough, another pattern here, a a woman has a loss, and a man leaves her. Um, Jack Sivy, he left her soon after that. And around probably sometime in 1887, she probably started coming down with tuberculosis, But she was still trying to make money with crochet and selling matches and flowers. And in late summer 1888, she went hop picking for some income, you know, go out and pick the hops. It wasn't a good harvest that year, but and she was living part time with the man that we've uh, referred to as the pensioner, Edward Stanley. He was 45, worked at a brewery. He would essentially stay the weekends with her in the lodging house. And we did mention in the last episode that she had those brass rings. She may have had those brass rings to sort of simulate marriage. But there was no evidence that this was, you know, a a sex worker type relationship. But again, the, you know, tunnel vision with the police was uh, strong as hell. Now the newspapers did very wildly... But testimony from the lodging housekeeper would tell us that Annie generally did get a double bed, but she slept alone.
1: Just like to twist and turn.
0: Yes, yes, I like to have that extra room, yes. Now, uh, this was a point when uh, the, the newspaper The Star was an absolute dick. Quote, Probably she did not rise until the shades of night enabled her to ply her hideous trade, but she... and. And she then seems to have spent her time in passing from liquor shop to liquor shop with the fitting companions, male and female, of such orgies.
1: God, if I could have a time machine, I'd like to go back, kidnap, kidnap like a journalist, and just bring him back forward and have him write crappy stuff about me all night long.
0: (laughs) That does sound really fun. It
1: does. The Rotunda Fellows fetters his day all day long, staring at his magic screen and looking at plastic toys that shape from one being to another. (laughs) He's seen a little on the nose for
0: (laughs) journalists, I think. (laughs) Yeah, a little too accurate, Scott.
1: (laughs) You're right, you're right. Sorry, I gotta throw something else in there. And and then... Embellish, embellish. and, And even though I do not see it for thine own eyes at night, I imagine he draws pentagrams on the ceiling and hangs upside down and summons all matter of demons forth so that he can have his podcasting abilities. Satan, get behind thee!
3: <laughs> wow.
2: That might have be a little overselling there. <laughs> <laughs> happy medium. Uh, honestly, I'd
1: come, I'd come out the next day and do like brisk conference. Uh, don't you think I'd have more listeners if I sold my soul to the devil? I'm just saying... <laughs>
0: But no, that was that was amazing. I don't care if it was over the top. It was the overtopness that that really sold it for me. It's like Nicolas Cage. <laughs> yeah. Oh, don't say don't say that name. No. That's the evil name for Amber. No.
2: <laughs> I know his brother really well, actually. Coppola. Yeah, uh, Chris Coppola is. He's a. Th- I didn't know he was Nick Cage's brother at first until one of the first times I'm talking with him. Uh huh. I lost my glasses. I lost my fucking glasses. <laughs> like, oh my god, it's 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 Nick Cage, and then I realized no, he's just a very bald, scary man. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I I had no idea. So many of you fuckers knew uh, Sylvia Brown. Jesus Christ! It's like. <laughs> Does anybody except me not know Sylvia Brown? It seemed like all of a sudden, like I was, I, like, I say one nasty thing about her, and then all of a sudden, well, I was pretty passionate. Maybe I deserved it. Anyway, go ahead.
0: Nasty but not uh-huh.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> So we do know what happened to poor Annie Chapman after that. Um I should, we should probably put a message at the top that if you haven't listened to episode part one of this, go back and listen, because we're just doing the victims now. You want to you know, hear the timeline and everything first. Otherwise, this is very out of context. So um, maybe we'll do that. But um, her family did pay for her funeral. She was buried in a communal grave at Manor Park Cemetery in East London. The details were kept quiet. Only her family attended. He didn't have the whole hubbub when the information slipped out like last time. The exact location is pretty much lost to history, but there is a plaque here as well. uh, Quote, her remains are buried within this area. And she was 46. Mm -hmm.
1: They have uh, up on her Wikipedia page, they have Annie Chapman's wedding photo. And the woman looks like she's hiding a frog in her mouth and is very upset by it.
0: (laughs) Okay, if you're going to say that about the victim, why don't you talk some shit about her husband too?
1: I don't have a photo of him. (laughs) <laughs> He's in the wedding photo. I'm I'm not seeing the I'm only seeing her on the uh Wikipedia page. Let me uh let me bring up that wedding photo. He's also not
0: he, he is not an attractive man.
1: <laughs> let's see here. Annie Chapman wedding photo. I am looking it up right now. Chapman wedding photo. Okay. And let's talk some shit about this man. Let's see here. Oh yeah. Yeah, he looks, like, uh, he looks like Tim Curry's younger brother who's really animus about his, uh, his older brother getting all the fame.
0: That was not nearly as mean as what you said about Annie. <laughs> I'm not saying Annie's unattractive.
1: I'm just saying it looks like she's hiding a frog in her mouth.
0: Probably having to be in that pose for 25 minutes. You know, here's you know. the thing.
1: Have you ever seen Tom Holland, the guy that plays Spider-Man now? He also looks like he's hiding a frog in his mouth all the fucking time. He really does. I know exactly <laughs> what you mean. Yeah.
0: <laughs> All right. So Elizabeth's... I
1: I wonder if Tom Holland's uh, uh, related to Annie Chapman. They have that same same mouth. He Annie Chapman looks a little bit like Tom Holland.
0: Celebrity lookalikes.
1: Yeah.
3: I don't think he would like that comparison. I'm just saying. I bet. I bet
1: if I walked up to Tom Holland and I said. You look like you're hiding a frog in your mouth. He would think it's fucking hilarious. No,
2: he'd open his mouth and out would come a frog.
1: Exactly. Thank <laughs> God. My I'm so relieved my secret is done.
0: <laughs> All right. Can I move on now?
2: Yes.
3: Oh, he is
0: English. He is English. It's so maybe maybe there's a relation. Okay. Elizabeth Stride. Uh, I've been looking forward to saying her maiden name all week. She was born Elizabeth Gustav's daughter. I love oh. Swedish names. Uh, <laughs> November, November 27th, 1843 in Stora, Tumulhead, Sweden, to a farmer, Gustaf Erison, and his wife, Beata. Uh, she was the second of four children. Basically, the farm life. Um, you, you you know, there's all, a whole bunch of responsibilities that come along with it and not very much schooling. At nearly 17, she treks off to the nearby city of Gothenburg where she got a job as a maid, but four years later, she left service. That was early 1864. Unknown were the reasons, but known was the pregnancy uh, when uh, in late 1864 it came along Um So that now, the way it worked in Sweden, they had this whole thing going on with sex work. Uh, They had lists and there were procedures and there were examinations and there were rules and it was really something. Um, But essentially, she having a pregnancy automatically being single got her on this list of fallen women. Uh, It wasn't always sex workers, anyone that they were, you know, was accused of, quote, lecherous living um so the, and Gothenburg kept two they had one that was sex workers and one was that was the, the the lecherous livers so um it's really something uh she was found to have secondary phase syphilis which we she likely got from the father of her child she was sent to a hospital where they treat such things and um it's not pleasant she, uh, while there, had her baby girl, but she was stillborn at seven months. Now, once out, again, you have this fucking cycle. You get put on this list, and you're not even a sex worker. And not that that should matter, but now you can't get a job because you've been put on this damn list. So what does she have to do? Sex work. Exactly. I. It's just... It's okay yeah okay i'm gonna i'm gonna I'm gonna tamp down on their rage and i'll'll I'll, this doesn't sound healthy especially in this episode but I'll drink it away later um
2: <laughs> hashtag fuck the patriarchy uh, yes
0: exactly thank you um now she probably lived in I'm sorry I had to note this down um a, they had a little system here where you, if you had an attic, you could divide it up into these little cubicles, and then you could rent them out to the sex worker. And each uh, cubicle was called a looter cooper, which is uh, translates to whore closet.
2: Oh. <laughs> oh, I have so many jokes that I really can't make because some of them might listen to this. Whore closet. Whore <laughs> oh. closet. God,
1: yep. my sister lived in a little town called Lewes, Delaware, and the original name of Lewes, Delaware, was actually uh, was actually Horrkill, Delaware, <laughs> that uh, the Murderkill uh, River ran to all the way from Horrkill, Delaware, the Murderkill River to Slaughter Beach.
2: <laughs> wow.
1: Yeah. Right. Like, Wait, that okay.
2: city called I'm Horrorville, Movieville?
1: Horrorkill, horrorkill. I don't know the reason why it was called Horrorkill, but I know m- uh, m- uh, the Murderkill River, it was actually because of the Dutch translation. They tried to name it like, uh, I think it's like Mother's Love or something like that, but it's, uh, it's like mu- <laughs> mudder, mudder Kyle was the Dutch thing, so they just went m- uh, m- Murderkill, Murderkill River.
3: Yay! Mothers love. Murder Mother's kill. murder, kill. Same thing. We should look though and see if there was ever like a, a series of of uh, deaths there, because that would be an interesting. No, right now, right now,
1: for some strange reason, dead bodies keep washing up on murder kill uh, rivers' banks.
0: <laughs> right. That is uh, startlingly appropriate. Yeah. Yeah. Right on the nose. Art imitating life.
1: <laughs> hmm yeah yep um let's see here <clears throat> murder kill murder kill it's a no,
3: uh, no we'll circle back to okay fine back to the victims <coughs> fine I'm sure we'll circle back yeah <laughs> yeah
1: yeah we'll get there eventually there's a lot of murdering and killing going on so it's just a matter of time really
0: it really is yes now <clears throat> so, uh, liz uh was eventually hired by uh a musician's wife as a maid And that uh, was, gave her the possibility of getting her name off the registry. She did manage to snag herself 65 crowns at some point. It was either an inheritance or a little like recompense for, you know, here's a little money for your trouble from a lover. And she used that to get ready to travel because I can't imagine that she wanted to stick around there very long, considering everything she'd gone through. And in February 1866, she left to be uh, a place to get a place as a maid in London. She had everything was all worked out. She just had to get there. And then in 1869, uh, she was married to John Thomas Stride. He was quite the bachelor. He was 22 years older than her. Uh, he uh, was a carpenter, his father was an entrepreneur, and he had basically, like, spent his time, you know, helping his parents and a, and a brother out, and um, interestingly, she put a false name, not only for herself, but for her father on the marriage register, so she was really trying to escape that past. And speaking of her past, it should be noted because I did say she had syphilis earlier and you probably were like, she got married? Well, it was in the latent stage, so at that time she couldn't have given it to John. So there is that at least. Uh, he opened a coffee house and business was okay, but the family life was not so great. Uh, the syphilis likely was what pre- prevented her from bearing any children And uh, when John's father died in 1873, he, in the will, doled out money to all the siblings and didn't even mention John, the son who had stuck around to help him for, like, 20 years. Wow. Yeah, that's cold. So soon after that, they had to sell the coffee house, in 1877, Liz left him, and she would do the, the, the bounce back and forth between vagrancy and workhouses, and then back to John, and then the cycle begins again. Until in 1881, they finally decided to just cut their relationship off permanently. She also did some scamming. She was, she was interesting in this way. She had this whole tale of there had been a big shipwreck... And she started telling people, you know, anyone she thought she could, you know, scam a few, few pennies off of that. She'd lost her husband and two of her nine kids in the shipwreck. She also had this, this nearsighted tailoress that thought that Liz was actually her sister, who was also named Elizabeth. And so she would use that fake relationship to, you know, scam some money off of the, the, the tailoress. The first time I've seen the feminization of the word tailor, and it sounds weird coming out of my mouth. Um, just, now you know what it's like in my head <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, after the end of her marriage she did end up in white hat Ho- not in White House in Whitechapel in a lodging house uh, she would work as a charwoman and she was also known to be again quite the alcoholic um in 1884 John died soon after that she was picked up for soliciting as well as drunk and disorderly she received 7 days of hard labor but that's the only record of a soliciting arrest we have for her so just the one and that's it um, and even back then the the police were they were still trying to figure out what qualifies as sex work and who qualifies as a sex worker and yeah it was a, it's a whole big confusing thing but you know i guess i'd like to ask you guys your question let's say this was her first time out and she is, in fact, soliciting sex work, Um, does that brand her for life? Is she automatically, like, should she include that in her resume for the rest of her life?
3: Well, apparently in these times.
0: Yes, yes.
2: Honestly, no, of course not. But it does make it easier to brand onto someone, which is the problem is that once you see the stain of something that, at the time, is considered the most vulgar thing you could really do, but other than murder or maybe performing abortions, uh, sex work had that much of a stain on the society. And it's honestly, it at that point, you're looking at it going, "Well, obviously, this is the worldwide. Should it be that way? No, of course not. I mean, nowadays, the number of people." who have uh, done sex work of a type or another is massive. Even people who don't think they've ever done sex work. Hey,
1: $5 and is $5, Chris.
2: <laughs> I was hoping you would say more like 50 but okay. I was really hungry for a Snickers.
1: <laughs> oh, I gotta mop my brow. Anyway, here here's the thing with sex work. Even today, honest to god it shouldn't be any more stigmatic like like i work for the cable company i'm a prostitute i'm a stripper i teach drum lessons i'm not saying i've done all these things two out of the four but the the whole situation is it's just a fucking job it's not like it's not like you're a drug dealer Let's say you're a heroin dealer. If I give somebody of, uh, some heroin, that's illegal. If I sell somebody some heroin, that's illegal. If I give somebody an orgasm for free, that's not illegal. But if I make them pay me for it, it is. It's the only thing I can think of that it is illegal to sell,
2: but legal to give away free. But it's even weirder than that because then it's legal to do it if you film it. Yeah. Um, and so there's so many layers to this we as a large culture have had so many conflicting emotions about this now there were good reasons to want to limit sex work particularly in the UK Uh, the spread of disease of course the lack of of reliable contraception honestly there were those would be good reasons to at least discourage it at the same time to stigmatize people like that absolutely shouldn't have happened so it's one of those things like uh, yeah. hey you want to discourage sex work
1: I got an idea a healthy environment and a vibrant workforce <laughs> because I guarantee 99% of these women do not want to suck dick for money
3: but you know what? Yes. They don't offer that now. The healthy environment and vibrant work.
1: No, no, they don't. <laughs> and, and and you know what? Backpage was a thing.
0: Yeah, yeah, they're making it more difficult uh, to do it safely. So yeah. Mm. All right. Well, I was just curious what you guys thought on that. I I do feel that like you know one, it's not it's not a career if you do it once, um, I, even if you get paid for it. Uh, is, is how I feel. Um, like and things that I've done in the past, I, I I started off my my time in the workforce as a you know tech support representative. Do I still refer to myself as a tech support representative? No, because I'm not doing it right now. <laughs> so no, and and like, I got it.
3: Twenty years. <laughs> I have stuff that I I did for work that I never put on my resume. Like I don't put on my resume that I was a shot girl at the gay bar. Yeah. Right. Like, <laughs> And it was the the funnest job I've probably ever had, but it was also under the table, so I can't include it.
1: Shot Girl at the Gay Bar is the Electric Six new album. (laughs) That's a great
2: great (laughs) title, in fact. Yeah, I I, I definitely get that. And one of the big things is that, you know, we now have a different concept of what a vocation is uh, compared to then when... What you have, you would have a very limited set of things that you did in your life. We something we take for massive granted nowadays is we have so many options of what we can do with our time and ourselves. And this is very new. This is something that, you know, as you look at the course of human history, that is one thing that has changed all along the way. And it's technology, it's everything builds up and gives you more options. And so the methodology that people were using of, well, if you did it once, you are forever, kind of plays in with that mindset as well. Um, And I'm glad I don't have to say that I was a camp counselor for the rest of my life, because then people would want me to watch their kids more.
0: There you go. Mm Mm-hmm. So um, so, uh, she then hooks up with Michael Kidney, he's a dock worker, they live together. Now, he was uh, quite a violent drinker, and of course she was drinking too, so this relationship tended to be of the on-and-off variety, as we've seen with several <laughs> relationships. All the relationships seem to be of the on-and-off relation er, variety. There, are, there is no happy ending. Um, she did have more arrests, but they were for drunken disorderly and obscene language, stuff like that. Uh, and in the summer of 1888, she actually got arrested four times in three months for drunken disorderly. But what people don't really think about when they look at that is that it's possible that her syphilis was in its final phase. Uh, she was having seizures and she had possible dementia. So I feel um, super bad for us making fun of her doing the, the fire engine imitation in the last episode. <laughs> Makes a lot more sense now. Nah, <laughs> you
1: no, know? nah, I still don't feel bad. Fuck it. I have very little. I fe- know you I, never feel. Bad. I, I really don't. I really don't. <clears throat> and that's the one silver lining to COVID for me is because now if I'm sitting down like on a chair and somebody sits next to me, I can look at him and go, "Are you fucking kidding me? Fuck off!" And it's still them who's the asshole, not me. <laughs> there
0: you go. <laughs> silver linings. Um, when uh, in the eight 80- in September of. A- 1888, the relationship with uh, Michael Kidney was off again so she went back to the lodging house that was kind of like her home base as we discussed before there were tons and tons of sightings with her of her on the night of the murder uh, none of those ones you know, she's seen here with a man and with this hat she's seen there with a man with that hat none of them are verifiable except kinda um, Israel Schwartz and don't know if uh the man that was attacking her that he witnessed was actually jack the ripper we just know that you know you know jack the ripper he, that, that man could have left and then two minutes later jack the ripper comes along <laughs> and there's no witnesses so uh it is you know we we don't absolutely know for sure that, that was the case i did have one there was one interesting revelation i came upon when i was uh looking around a little bit and it's it's only tangentially related to the victims but we discussed the Lifsky thing last week um it was yelled out during this during this encounter when he witnessed what may have been the beginning of the murder and uh, i believe it was a, a dissertation on case book that I ran into where they were discussing other possibilities, and the one that never occurred to me that I was like, oh, I'm so stupid was Lizzie.
3: Oh. Oh, that would make sense. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Fuck. Mind blown.
0: Right? Right. (laughs) And the man who hears it, Israel Schwartz, does not speak English, but he has heard slurs before, so Lipsky would be he he would automatically assume that anything that sounds like that is probably a slur against him because he's Jewish and so he automatically assumes it's Lipsky. but Lizzie and you know you have Michael Kidney who is a violent drunk in a relationship with her I don't know you know I think those pieces kind of fit together a little too well
1: yeah
2: you're
1: You're absolutely right wow fuck (laughs) Okay.
0: You know, so, Scott, you know how you're always saying you want us to solve a mystery?
1: I think you got one.
0: (laughs) I think I might have just solved a Jack the Ripper killing. Good work. (laughs) That's the sparsest evidence that anybody has ever had, and it's a lot of speculation, but... (laughs) But it's good enough for us. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) All right. So, yes, we know what what happened to her then. We discussed it in the first episode of this uh, Jack the Ripper series. She had to be identified, actually, by the clerk at the Swedish church, who also went to her, the pauper's grave that she was lowered into and prayed over her. Uh, the funeral was very sparse. It was paid for by the undertaker. She was buried at East London Cemetery Company, and she was 44. Oh. (Laughter) Remember the numbers. All right. Then we come to Catherine Eddowes, also known as Kate. And if you want to hear about another murder case that she was tangentially involved in, uh, sort of, uh, in the the aftermath, at least, the extreme aftermath, uh, we uh, talked about it on the Old Tiny Crimey that's available over on the Patreon. So go over and check out patreon.com slash old tiny crimey. Nope. Patreon.com slash old timey crimey. I get them mixed up. <laughs> I don't know what I, what I'm doing. Um, so. <laughs> All right. So Catherine Eddowes, Kate, she is born on April 14th, 1842 to George and Catherine Eddowes. She is the youngest of 10 surviving children. Of course. Those are just, yeah. Right. Uh, George is a tin worker, and when she is around one year old, they moved to... Well, I'm sorry. She was the youngest of the children that they had when they moved to London, and then more children came after that. I messed that up when I was trying to condense, because there was a lot of information. Um, but uh, yeah, she was one of ten children, so that's a lot. Uh, when she was one year old, less than that, they moved to London... And really, she was the only one of her siblings that was sent to this charity school that was... Their main mission was to bring children out of this cycle of poverty. You know, if you teach them enough, if you keep them clean and everything, then they will want to learn more, they'll want to stay clean, and they'll want to aspire to more. And who knows? Maybe after the kids were out the door, it was like, well, fuck them. You know, like, <laughs> we did what we could, and now they're stuck in the cycle still. But there were several success stories, so... um, in 1855 her mother died of tuberculosis when Kate was only 13 the uh anybody want to guess okay so her mother was 42 when she died anybody want to guess the average lifespan for a working class woman in the 1850s
1: 17
3: (laughs)
0: uh 38
2: oh damn it I was going to say 38 37
0: Amber gets it. 42, actually. Ah! Ah! Price is right in your ass! <laughs> <laughs> I'll
2: get you next time, Gadget.
0: <laughs> so then her father also died of probably tuberculosis. The narrative was a little unclear, but it seemed like it was probably TB in 1857. So a lot of loss again here. She uh, some family got her a job as a scourer, which uh, there was this was a big tin making area that she was in um, that, or that the family came from. They would immerse tin in oxide baths and then dry it in sawdust. This was in Wolverhampton. And she had uh, the remaining siblings that weren't married or old enough to be to find employment. And in addition to one who had an intellectual disability, um, there were four of them, uh, and they ended up in the workhouse. Uh, so uh, things did... They, they generally seemed to actually turn out pretty well afterwards, though, those those siblings. But uh, Kate was drinking by her late teens. She was caught stealing tinware from her employer, and at 19, they dismissed her. So she headed out from the relatives she'd been staying with and went off to Birmingham, where she lived with her Uncle Tom. He was a shoemaker or in the shoemaking industry and also a bare-knuckle boxer with the alias The Snob.
1: Ooh. I yeah. say, I say, come at me, fine fellow. I have practiced a uh, fisticuffs at Cambridge.
0: <laughs> oh, she went back to work in a tin factory again. And then after that, she ends up living in a lodging house with uh, Thomas Conway, who is an Irish former guardsman and peddler of chapbooks. And these would be chapbooks generally of his and her composition. In 1862, she was pregnant. um, And so they would basically work together. She would help him sell his wares. He would do the patter and she would sing. And apparently that drew people in. And then in the workhouse infirmary, she gave birth to Catherine uh, Annie Conway in 1863. They wander, they pedal, they wander, they pedal. And then they write a poem uh, about a particular execution. And it's basically true crime, <laughs> you know? Of course. And uh, they make enough to end up in London. And this uh, gentleman who was being executed, well, gentleman as a using that term very loosely, um, is actually her cousin. So that is interesting. And again, uh, you might want to hear about that over on the Patreon. Um, she, they had three children between 1867 and 1873, one of which died of malnutrition at three weeks old. So, you know, monetarily, things weren't always going great. Uh, and during this period, basically, Conway just wanders around looking for work. He's going here, he's going there, and she and the kids are, are doing what they have to do and going in and out of the workhouse. When Conway came home, geez, the patterns here. Uh, he was usually violent, and uh, she would drink heavily, and she also had some uh, drunken disorderly arrests in 1877 and 78. And her family saw her like she she would show up to see her family just horribly beaten, and it was seen. It was really seen as a failing on the woman's part, you know. Well, he beats you because you drink, and they essentially two of her sisters at that point cut contact with her. And uh, Kate and Conway they go back to peddling the chapbooks. In 1879, her infant son dies. And her other children, it's 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 like Amber said, they were they were kind of considered expendable. She would just desert them, like literally, they would be out on the street peddling chapbooks, and she'd be like, "Okay, we're gonna go off over here. You guys stay put." And uh, she wouldn't come back for a week or a month, you know. But kids are resilient. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Uh, in 1881, she had her final separation from Conway. Uh, She got another drunken disorderly and her next to last sister that she's close to cuts contact with her. So she has one sister left from which she can seek help who lives in Whitechapel. Kate ends up in that neighborhood in a lodging house where she meets John Kelly who is a fruit seller and, oh, guess what? Also a heavy drinker. Uh, She also does some charring. They'll do the usual rotation, uh, lodging houses, casual houses, sleeping rough, and, you know, start back at A again. She would actually beg her eldest daughter for money so much that in 1886, that daughter moved to avoid her.
1: (laughs) I've done that to family members before. (laughs)
0: It was just like holy shit you must have been really annoyed um but yeah it was it was definitely a, probably um it had an impact on her life and also when the eldest daughter tried to get kate to come for the you know for the birth of her first child kate was like well i'll come but you gotta pay me and they paid her and then she just went off drinking so that didn't work out very well um, but despite all these, these hardships and everything, the relationship with John didn't really seem to be that bad. Now, she did have, it was not known to her at the time, it wasn't known until the autopsy, she had Bright's disease, which uh, is now known as acute nephritis, which damaged her kidneys. And they did at the time, I believe, think it was caused by drinking, but now we know it's not. Um, they also, uh, John and Kate, went to the countryside to go hop picking in 1888, just like Annie Chapman. Um, but it was a bad harvest, like I said. And then, as we know, on the night of the double event at 8.30 p.m., she's arrested for public drunkenness. And she is let out at 1 a.m., goes to Miter Square, and bad things happen. So... uh, Here is a weird thing that I kind of only sort of caught last time. Uh, When she was arrested, she gave her name as Mary Ann Kelly Mm -hmm. and a a false address of of Fashion Street. And we'll get into that when we talk about uh, the the next victim in a minute here. Um, So she basically goes looking for John and can't find him. And then, again, we have no proof from anyone that she was a sex worker however during his testimony john used the phrase walking the streets probably referring to you know periods of vagrancy and the papers just took that and ran with it and the cops i'm sure did too um her sister eliza was the one who identified her body and that was the last sister who had cut her off Now, uh, the funeral was quite something. Uh, there was a glass hearse, there were mourning carriages, and nearly 500 people at the cemetery when she was laid to rest. Her sisters uh, all came to see her off, as well as her nieces and John Kelly. And uh, again, I have that the undertaker paid for the services, so he must have been rich. Damn, paying for. Funerals all over the place. I wonder, uh, though,
1: one. I, I wonder, though, maybe if if the Undertaker is paying for the funeral, like, God, and I hate to think of this of uh, think this way about anybody. I wonder at the same time if he isn't charging admittance to try like to to gawkers and to, to journalists to get his money back
0: with. Five hundred people at the cemetery, maybe, possibly with journalists, but with five hundred people, we that would have been somewhere in the records at some yeah, point. I don't, I don't know right. how they would have hidden that.
1: You're right. You're right. I just like to think the worst of people because people are just fucking horrible.
0: I mean, we talk about murders all the time, so yeah. yeah. um uh, She was buried at the City of London Cemetery. The grave was actually unmarked until 1996 when cemetery authorities placed a plaque on it. And she was 46.
1: Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) I think we're supposed to remember a number.
0: I I think we're supposed to remember several of them at this point. Uh, So, all right. Uh, Of the canonical five, we are now coming to number five mary jane kelly now Mm. what do we know about her we don't know what we know about her she uh told a lot of stories to a lot of people and they tended to be sometimes confusing and conflicting in 1863 maybe she was born in limerick to uh, a man named john kelly who was the foreman of an ironworks and brought the whole family to wales and then at 16, she married a coal miner who, after a year or two of, of wedded bliss, he died in an explosion. After that, she went off to Cardiff, where she spent some time in an infirmary, uh, several months, actually. And a cousin, maybe after that, drew her into prostitution. Around 1884, she gets to London and, quote, lived in a gay house in the west end of town, end quote. So gay houses, basically, with a lot of other sex workers and gay, but probably brothel-ish. Um, and gay women, gay ladies, were sex workers. So there you go. <sighs> um, it didn't just mean happy. <laughs> I was or still lesbian. hoping for a
2: West End, West End girls reference from uh, one of my favorite 80s songs, but I let it pass.
0: Sorry.
1: <laughs> In the western <laughs> town was... of a dead end world, the East End boys and West End girls, West End girls. Just you wait till Nicely. I get you home. Okay. Okay. Done. I'm done.
0: <laughs> Nicely done, gentlemen. <laughs> uh, this was all according to her lover, Joseph Barnett, or she actually was Welsh and her parents were well off and lived in Cardiff, but they had disowned her. And she came to L- London in like 82, 83 um, and had a relative in London who was in the theater, possibly had a baby who was born in 83. Absolutely not a goddamn thing is verifiable with Mary Jane Kelly. She, They couldn't find any of the family that she mentioned in Limerick or Wales. And after her death and you know all the, I'm sure, rampant worldwide newspaper articles about it, not a single person came forward and was like, oh yeah, I knew her. There's nothing in the census records. Probably that was a made-up name. You mean just like Mary Ann Kelly?
3: Like, do you think that that was like Jane Doe for hookers?
2: Yes.
0: I won... Wait, what did you say, Chris?
2: Oh, yes. Um, So, Mary Kelly is... It's not quite Jane Doe, but it is, if you were obviously not born and bred in London you could claim to be Irish you could claim to be Welsh uh, pretty much from anywhere uh, because there was such a stream of people from Ireland, from literally from the entire Commonwealth but really, Mary Kelly is just the single most undeniably non-British name because it's such an Irish name uh, because it can be a Welsh name. It'd be the same today as, you know, uh, I've had this problem. Uh, there are tons of people who, in the 70s in San Jose around here, who claim to be John Garcia, which happened to be the actual name of my father, which makes genealogy nearly impossible. Oh dear. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, so that sort of thing, pre- you know, pretending to have a different name, particularly if you're someone of a class in the criminal class. Particularly, but certainly, uh, women who are performing sex work having an alias that is impossible to look up is certainly a good good thing to have.
0: Yeah, and it seems like, see, at least according to Rubenhold, which the evidence on this seemed a little speculative, but I gave it a pass. She might have had more than one reason to have an alias. Um, We'll get there in just a second. But she was said to be very bright. Uh, she was called a good scholar. Um, she had some artistic talent. If That's not somebody who was raised in the slums. You know, that education, especially like drawing, something like that, they don't teach you something superfluous like that. And I'm not saying art is superfluous, but when you're living hand to mouth, that's basically what it's considered. Yeah. Um, so it, it seems like she would have gone to a school for like middle class, upper class, upper middle class, something like that.
4: Probably. There was.
0: I mean, she just She she also seemed to be. Personality-wise, the way that they described her seemed like she she was a little bit more polished. I guess I would say.
2: Yeah, and if if she was in fact Irish or Welsh or, uh, even Cornish, uh, she would be more likely to have had a decent education uh, there than she would have had she been in London her entire life.
0: Uh, that makes sense yeah yeah she had no discernible accents um that marriage that she mentioned uh, told somebody about nobody can trace that the baby can't trace that uh none of that and so she was actually for a time in london of the class of sex workers that is more like uh your, your, your classic escort it's a uh, they're, they're socializing here you they would the men would take the the sex worker to dinner or to some sort of social outing and it might be more than one night you know it's kind of like a temporary girlfriend the clientele is of the higher end variety you had politicians military officers even possibly royalty and you know in addition to payments there would also be some you know some little presents here and there maybe maybe they buy you a hat uh but she also could grapes have,
1: uh, grapes were a what? big present for from royalty to prostitutes grapes were a big thing
4: yep absolutely
1: hmm. mm-hmm. you wanted to really get in favor with your uh favorite lady of the evening a handful of grapes would do the trick nicely wow the more
0: you know but she could have also solicited on the street or gone to some sort of venue where it was just kind of like known around town, like that's where you go, you know, if you're if you're looking to get your knob waxed or whatever. Um, <laughs> I'm sure they had some phrase or 18 million for it. Now.
1: <laughs> Sorry, I've about 50 of them just popped to in mind instantly because that's the way my brain works.
0: It that's is. why I was chuckling. <laughs> <laughs> Now, the reason for the potentially false name may have been because she might have been trafficked to Paris at one point and then managed to escape back to London. And there's a whole... You know, there there is some evidence that might point to that. But like I said, I felt a little shaky, but also still very possible. I mean, it's not like it didn't happen. Um, and so once she came back to London, it seems she went into hiding. She didn't go back to the area of town she had been in. She actually settled in an area of town that was known for sex trade to sailors and went to a, a, a brothel there that kind of masqueraded as a boarding house. And this is where she starts to drink more heavily and is kind of known as a pretty angry drunk. And, and actually somebody did. It was, it was said that somebody was looking for her, you know, asking around her old haunts, uh, saying that he was her father. And uh, so that, that seemed to freak her out. Um, in 1887... She got a boyfriend, Joseph Fleming. He was a plasterer, and for a few months, they uh, lived together. Relationship might have been uh, abusive. And after that, she ended up at a lodging house in... How did you pronounce it earlier, Chris? Spittlefields? Spittlefields, yeah. Okay, I, I, my brain wanted to go Spittlefields, so I'm, I'm going to go with yours. Um, and was uh, soliciting via the, the street, so she was doing the, the traditional street walking. She was well-known in the area. People said she was always dressed pretty nicely. She seemed just like a respectable gal. She was uh, living on uh, Thrall Street, um, which is right by uh, Fashion Street. And that Doesn't is that where... does weird. that seem weird? <laughs> what, what part of it? The Fashion Street, Mary Kelly yes, that's what drives me crazy and that, okay, so the lodging house where if, if I'm remembering right, I wrote this in a kind of a confusing way, but um, so yeah, she lived on Thrall Street and Fashion Street where Kate Eddowes gave as her address is about 250 feet away, it's, it's basically right there Well, to each other it's, it's, it's you throw a stone and you, you, hit, you hit Fashion Street from Thrall Street and just the fact that she was well known in the area like I get the idea of it possibly being like a, a John Doe or Jane Doe for sex workers but also I wonder if you know Kate Edel's was like you know e- either wanted knew Mary Jane Kelly and kind of wanted to you know, stick this on her like oh well they'll go looking for Mary Kelly but got the wrong name or if it was just like oh yeah I've heard of that that, that Mary Kelly person I'll just give him her name you know I, maybe I, she stole her soap they, they, they lived in the same area they did the same you know profession maybe she stole her soap yeah um, you know I, 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 it's hard to think they didn't know each other right yeah you think
2: yeah Sorry. it's highly possible with one big thing is that these are people who are interacting with each other in a very small area Whitechapel is not that big, and Spitalfields is even smaller. And the fact that you would choose Fashion Street largely because it's a believable place within Whitechapel, within Spitalfields, uh, to, um, you know, there were several significant streets. Fashion Street was one. Commercial Street's another. Because uh, if you, and it's less likely that they'll look into it. Uh, so having that sort of plausible deniability is always nice when you're giving a fake address. Chris, Not that I've
0: you you can try and logic me out of this, but I didn't really logic my way into it, so I'm stuck. <laughs> <laughs> Fair I mean, I'm. And I'm very oddly attached to this theory. I was so excited. <laughs> like, you know, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't hardly. I'm not going to solve the Jack the Ripper by saying that these two passed each other on the street once or, you know, heard each other's names. But at the same time, I'm just like, they knew each other. I'm sure of it. So.
2: Well, not with that attitude, you're
0: not. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. I've already solved one murder tonight. God, Chris, come on. <laughs> All right. So, um, Mary Kelly did manage to put up a good front, but the few people who were close to her did know she wasn't really happy. She had a friend who was thinking about, you know, following in her footsteps. And she told that friend that she was, quote, heartily sick of the life she was leading, end quote. So around Easter 1887, she meets Joseph Barnett. And they're living together basically within two days. This is a whirlwind romance, probably of some convenience, but... Um, he was 29 and a porter at the fish market their living situations tended to be shaky again they both liked to drink we should have made a drinking game where we drink every time we say drink I've been doing that (laughs) oh god Jackson and I have a drinking game where we uh, we drink every time uh, they say old timey on my favorite murder
1: it's like free advertising
0: (laughs) (laughs) right (laughs) I like advertising. Yeah. Um, Sorry, I just had a weird swallow. Um, They uh, they would get a (laughs) big. Shut up! (laughs) It's eighty five degrees in here, and I'm just trying to get through this.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Only two more hours. We're fine.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) I'm going to be so dehydrated. Um, so they would get evicted either for a lapse in rent or just for general drunkenness and, you know, annoying everybody. Uh, but it looks like she did actually remove herself from sex work during this time period. When she was with him, Mm -hmm. they ended up at Miller's court, living in a single room, basically like 10 by 12 feet. However, Joseph lost his job and they were behind on their rent by about seven weeks. And then in November, 1888, Things were tense, and without any money, she, she goes back to what she knows. She ends up going back to soliciting. They have an argument, and in the course of said argument, she breaks a pane of glass in the window next to the door. And there was no getting it fixed, really. It was just shove some rags in there and call it a day. Um, he also, here's the thing. We mentioned uh, in the last episode that she had brought home uh, another sex worker. I didn't really make the connection. And we also mentioned that they would read together about Jack the Ripper in the papers. She was bringing people back to the, the room that she was afraid would be potential victims. She was bringing them back for their own safety. I didn't even make that connection. Yes. Mm. Okay, thank you. I was like, okay, I'll keep going. <laughs>
1: Like I'm kind of wondering if it wasn't a situation where she was bringing them back so that the two of them could entertain a customer together
0: I mean it's certainly possible but I think it's doubtful it honestly was like and I think that he actually did say I don't know for sure but I think he did say in his testimony he was like yeah I left because she kept on bringing you know her her fellow sex workers and not just sex workers but people who were uh, also vulnerable like you know people who were going to be sleeping rough she would bring them back Um So honestly, I think it was just like she was worried about her friends and people she knew. But I think that in his testimony, Barnett did say, you know, that was why I left. She kept on bringing people back when, you know, we only have this 10 by 12 room. I know she wanted to keep people safe, but there's a limit, you know, Mm -hmm. is what his position was.
3: I I have had a theory from the beginning that she was the last victim because she was the main one that he wanted. And so with the possibly false name, the, the no backstory, people looking for her... I think that she was
0: bringing people back to keep herself safe. That's entirely possible. That's a good point, Amber. I didn't think of it that way either. So it's kind of a you know a mutual safety thing. So, But Barnett gets sick of all this, uh, and on October 30th he leaves, but he does come to check back on her frequently, as he would do on November 8th. When he comes, he stays for about an hour. He's like, look, I still haven't found any work. I still don't have any money to give you. And then one of the neighbors thought she saw Mary Jane drunk. I started calling her MJ in my notes here, and I'm going to keep with it because uh, I like her. Um, (laughs) Drunk and with a man around 11.45 that night. Uh, But it was, you know, they canvassed the pubs and nobody recalled serving her or even seeing her. So could have been a mistake. Um, But then uh, she came back uh, with a man and told the neighbor that they were going to have song before taking the man to her room where she indeed started singing a song called A Violet Plucked From My Mother's Grave When I Was a Boy, which is just as cheerful as the title implies.
1: (laughs) Man, Seals really let himself go.
0: (laughs) (laughs) She was actually singing until like 1 a.m., uh, and there was another neighbor upstairs who, as in many, many of these living quarters, could hear everything going on in Her below her. She heard only quiet at 1.30 a.m. It's likely, the picture the author paints, is that Mary Jane went to bed and then um, the killer used the hole in the window to reach in and unlock the door. Oh god, that's creepy. That's so creepy. I hated it. I hate it! I hate, it. I hate it. Yeah. And then the horrifying, horrifying event that we talked about in the last episode happened. Um, Her funeral, there was an open hearse, two mourning carriages. The coffin was made of oak and elm with wreaths and a cross in... uh, And then she was 25. Fuck. Am I supposed to remember this number, too? Mm, Kind of.
1: Okay.
2: Because here's where it all comes together. So if you're looking at this as a set of victims that were purposely chosen Mary Kelly is not a victim of Jack the Ripper she doesn't fit in so many different ways she's killed indoors the amount of ripping the non placement in a public location publicish at least the age though is a giant factor all the others were in their 40s she was in her 20s this is the only good argument I've heard for Mary Kelly not being a victim of the Ripper um, other than it brings me into Amber in direct conflict um, I was going to (laughs) say is that she doesn't fit so many different areas and yet at the same time it does feel like the ultimate escalation to what could be an ending for someone who is that level of insane
0: absolutely I agree with you on on that like and it is interesting that you two have like I don't, I, those different theories like you're both like gunning in different directions completely, like two trains passing in the night air, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Should we sing is. a song? <laughs> no? Okay. <laughs> you hate singing. You never want to sing. <laughs> I know. I was
3: really just gonna make him sing and then mute myself.
1: Okay. <laughs> so wait what would I sing? <laughs> so, the Strangers
3: in the Night song. Strangers
1: Let's
2: Strangers in the Night. <laughs> do you think maybe
1: Maybe if Amber's maybe if Amber's theory is true that Mary Kelly was the intended victim all along of Jack the Ripper, do you think Jack the Ripper maybe targeted 40-year-old women because he didn't see them as such of a waste of beauty?
2: That's an interesting theory. Actually, wait, what if it's Mary Kelly was the Ripper and she committed suicide because she couldn't handle it anymore?
0: She didn't cut her own tits off. Hell of a suicide. (laughs) Hell of a way to go, man.
2: I don't think you know the commitment some people have.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Jesus.
1: I think probably the most committed person in history to committing suicide was a comedian who was on Saturday Night Live. I believe his name was Rick
2: Rocket. Charlie Rocket.
1: Yeah, Charlie Rocket. Charlie Rocket. Yeah, I miss him too. He was funny. Uh, You'll know him as like the main bad guy in uh, in Dumb and Dumber. Uh, Fucking Rocket damn near took his own head off with a knife.
2: Yeah, Jesus Elliot Christ. Smith is the other one who stabbed himself in the heart. Yeah, twice. Yeah. At
1: at some All point, right. you have to go. Hey. Okay, this is a disease, and they just died of the disease because this wasn't like an overdose of pills. This, like Charlie Rocket, cut his own head
0: off. Yeah, that is extreme self-violence. Yeah, extreme. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this just got dark Yeah, But I, I, I'm I'm gonna
3: say that we're we're good here. She didn't do this because, like, I don't think she could have removed her intestines and breasts and put them under her head. So I think it's it's pretty clear Wait, that um there
1: what were if other what if the blood loss made her really sleepy and she couldn't find a
0: pillow? Jesus Christ!
3: <laughs> <laughs> her, her uterus, kidneys, and one breast were under her head. The other breast by her right foot, the liver between the feet and intestines by the right side, spleen by the left side.
1: A couple of years ago, there was a uh, kid who murdered his uh, father and tried to murder his mother. Uh, He was just uh, some spoiled bastard, but he essentially shot his father's face off Um, the father in shock. Went about his standard morning routine. He went out. Now remember, this is without a face. He went out. I know this. Yeah, went out, got the paper, cooked breakfast, uh, seemed to be, the blood pattern shows he was a little confused as to why he couldn't get the food in his mouth, went to the bathroom and fucking died of blood loss.
0: Jesus. All right, we veered away from the point just a little bit. (laughs) Just
1: a bit. Just a bit.
0: The lives of Victorian women uh, during the age of Jack the Ripper and the fact that so much is focused on the murderer and then we just get left with this narrative of, oh well they were all hoarse, you know mm-hmm. so um, I would like to read a quote from Hallie Rubenhold. Um if I can manage if my voice will hold out for that long, <laughs> because it's actually a little long, but I, I, I the, whole, the whole of it was just too much Okay. Quote. The cards were stacked against Polly, Annie, Elizabeth, Kate, and Mary Jane from birth. They began their lives in deficit. Not only were most of them born into working class families, they were also born female. Before they had even spoken their first words or taken their first steps, they were regarded as less important than their brothers and more of a burden on the world than their wealthier female counterparts. Their worth was compromised before they had even attempted to prove it. They would never earn the income of a man. Therefore, their education was of less importance. What work they could secure was designed to help support their families. It was not intended to bring them fulfillment, a sense of purpose, or personal contentment. The golden ticket for working class girls was a life in domestic service, where it might become possible, after a number of years of backbreaking work, to rise in station and become a cook or a housekeeper. Or a lady's maid. There were no desk jobs for poor girls like Kate Eddowes or Polly Nichols, though both were literate, but many that involved 12-hour days stitching trousers in a sweatshop, working in a factory, or gluing together matchbooks for a wage that barely paid for bed and board. Poor women's labor was cheap because poor women were considered expendable and because society did not designate them as a family's breadwinner. Unfortunately, many of them had to be, if a husband, father, or partner left or died, a working class woman with dependents would find it almost impossible to survive. The structure of society ensured that a woman without a man was superfluous. Hmm. Yeah. And honestly, I cannot recommend this book enough. The Five. It is a fascinating look into Victorian society, into. All the different aspects of it that that brought these women to the point uh, where they, you know, a- encountered someone such as Jack the Ripper, and it's... I, I actually, like, I got a little... I got sad at the end, and then I got mad at the end where she was quoting other, like, you know, ripperologists talking about the, the victims, and basically it was essentially that, you know, like, well, they were just whores, and I was just like... Guys, honestly, sorry if you're a fan of any of them, Chris.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm a friend <laughs> with a couple of them, but... It's Sorry. even they, even they have started to come around, and this is one of the things in ripperology that's happening today, is and it it started more or less with the five, but there's been this sort of current of how do we, and this is happening all across true crime in fact, how do we begin to understand how to prevent present a victim's narrative one without making their entire life about their death. And two, and this is the hardest part, without completely shining the light on the murderer. And uh, the hardest one that very few people have gotten, the closest is uh, Karina Longworth, uh, who does the show, uh, uh, You Must Remember This.
3: Yes, yes.
2: Uh, she did a series on Charles Manson that did not actually focus on Charles Manson. Wow. Uh, And managed to actually pull this, you know, you have to talk about them, but it was more about the time and the setting. And that's sort of what right now a lot of true crime is coming around to is, how do we not make this about glorifying the monsters who went out and killed people? And we're getting there, and it's taking time, but you're seeing a lot of work by people like uh, Billy Jensen, like uh, the Exactly Right people, uh, like... favorite murder who are trying to get to that point and i think that that's a wonderful wonderful way to approach it is to always make sure that the victims are presented as more than just their deaths
0: yes yes that is that is fantastic um i i agree that it is important and i've never felt that it was more important than when i finished reading the five so highly highly recommended Okay, I actually think I hit everything. Uh, Not everything. There seriously is so much more um, that I I grieved that I couldn't bring to everybody, but uh, I did my best. Anything I I missed?
1: God, no. I think that was incredibly comprehensive.
0: I agree. Yeah,
2: Yeah, brilliant. I mean, you can talk about Ripper lore about uh, any one of the victims, honestly, for hours. But one of the beautiful things is that. I feel like as I will walk away from this and go and tuck my children in, I feel like we have explored and done some justice to their memory.
0: I, I re- thank you so much for saying that, Chris, because I really, are honestly going to make me cry a little bit. Aww. <laughs> I mean,
1: come here, give us, us a hug social distance <laughs> hug, <laughs> self soothe.
0: I don't, I don't. I don't know if Chris is aware that I lost a cat this week. <laughs> so I'm super oh, emotional.
1: You know, I I feel for you, Christy, because so, that. Oh,
0: hearing that helps a lot because I, yeah. I really want to do justice to the victims.
1: I I feel you on the cat thing because there's been some uh, there's been some real horrid stuff going on with Cthulhu. I I had a cat that died about three months ago, Cthulhu, and I buried him out in the backyard. And about three days ago, something dug him up.
0: <gasps> no. Yeah.
1: Something. Oh my du- God. I told so, Jackson
0: he didn't have to dig as deep as he was going because I was like, I don't know what digs animals yeah. up. I've never heard of anything digging up animal. like all the. Right. The, the yeah. Pet cemetery,
3: what? bitches.
1: So I had to rebury my cat, live that trauma oh all God. over again. And today, whenever I came home, it happened again. I had to rebury Cthulhu for a third time. And this time I, I reburied him again and I placed, uh, I have like this massive fern and I, I place the fern like in, in its pot above Cthulhu and yeah, if I ever God help, whatever it is, if I ever find out what's digging it up, God help it.
0: What the hell is doing
1: that? Right, I'm thinking a skunk
3: Honestly, oh, if boy. you would put like dryer sheets, like even just a little bit under the mm-hmm. ground, it would probably keep most animals away
1: I might. They, they I don't might like do that, that smell I might do yeah, that. Or a
3: sheet,
2: or a sheet of aluminum foil will also keep things from digging. Mm.
0: Oh my gosh! I'm so sorry you've had to deal with that, oh, Scott. I, I think I'm,
1: that s- I'm sorry. I- I'm sorry that you had to deal with what you're going through. It's it's not easy. I I think that people that aren't, that, that don't have like pets in their lives and really care for them, I don't think they can understand. It's it's like losing a member of the family.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a week, definitely. Um, so yeah, I definitely needed to the. I needed to feel like I'd done something well. So, okay, I'm going to stop now. You did. <laughs> awesome. You did great. Thank you. I'm not like I'm not like fishing for compliments here guys. It's okay. <laughs> but I appreciate it very much. So, okay, that was Jack the Ripper, the victims, and the second time I've cried on this podcast. <laughs> so. First with the doppelganger and then with my deceased cat. Um, so and also the victims of Jack the Ripper. All of it combined was, is, is emotional for me. So, so yeah, um, uh, weekend plans, guys? I'm actually
1: going to have my first weekend in quite a while. I am, uh, yeah, yeah. Friday is my last day. Uh, and on 2 p.m. Saturday, I go to the third rounds for my, uh, for my audition for a vocal series that at this point will remain unnamed. But a lot of you in the future will hopefully hear of it.
0: Yay! It's so exciting. All right, Chris, what are you doing this weekend?
2: You know, same thing as always: watching massive amounts of unsolved mysteries, uh, going to do some writing, and a whole bunch of research on uh, King Arthur for an issue that's coming up. That's going to be mind-numbing because it's huge.
0: <laughs> no, is this? Um... My brain just blanked, even though I specifically went out, found the link to your your zine and put it in the show notes for tomorrow's episode. <laughs> 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 the same one that we we talked about last week, the same zine. Journey Planet. Journey Planet. Thank you. Yes. Um, yes. Is yeah, this, yeah. this is for Journey Planet.
2: Yeah. It's going to be. We've got a huge issue ready that is. Well, okay, it's not ready. We still have to write it and create it. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> It's going to be huge because there is so much Arthur out there and uh people just love king arthur did you know he was old
0: (laughs) i had no idea yeah
2: but yeah no that's gonna be a lot of fun and of course you know the best thing about the weekends is uh you know spending time with my kids uh no no it's probably just
0: uh,
3: when they go to bed still never mind yeah no my i agree i agree
0: oh so yeah amber uh just, just go spend the weekend looking forward to your kids bedtime well they don't actually sleep they're demons um
3: <laughs> but like we were we were invited to go to my mother-in-law's this weekend i don't know if we're gonna go but maybe
0: is it like a big party thing or what
3: i'm unsure if it is i'm not going That's um, good i i support you <laughs> She lives in the middle of nowhere and has, like, a huge yard, though. So, if it's just going to be, like, us, I think that would be fine. But I'm still... I'm unsure. But I have water balloons. So... I mean, I think that would be fine, too. Hmm. Our neighbors actually, like, left a bag on my porch full of the bunch of balloons. Which, if you've never had them, they're great. You can do, like, 100 water balloons at a time. Um... And the kids love them. And so somebody left this bag on my porch with like five sets of these water balloons. And it just said, hey, kids, have a blast. And then two names that I don't know. Huh. (laughs) So I think they're my neighbors that live like three houses down that I don't really know, but I, I wave at. And they just see us playing water balloons all the time. And so they gave us some, which was really sweet. That is so Nice.
0: I'm All assuming.
4: Right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I am going to be staying home and probably doing some podcasty stuff. Maybe doing some arts and craftsy stuff. I've, I've taken up hand lettering a little bit again and making people birthday cards. Sometimes birthday cards. Birthday, yes. I made uh, I made Amber's husband a, a birthday card, but in my calligraphy, I wrote I did the happy and then I wrote birthday. So I was like, okay, we'll try and salvage this. And I thought, well, he'll think it's funny. So I wrote. Like in calligraphy, oops, and pointed to it. I turned the card over, and I write happy again, and then I write birthday. De <sighs> <laughs> and that was the point where I wrote in calligraphy, motherfucker.
4: <laughs> it
0: is
3: the it and, is the prettiest motherfucker I have ever seen in my life.
0: <laughs> and then I just taped another card to it so it would open up because it was just like like one sheet cards. I taped another card to it, and I was like, well, I tried. Happy birthday. <laughs> <laughs> See, so, yeah, I might uh, do a little bit more of that Because I got some new calligraphy pens this week And I'm a dork <laughs> So, so yeah, You are is... a dork, but I love it Oh, I'm glad you love it I was actually kind of happy that I messed it up Because I was like, this is actually the best carnival <laughs> So <laughs> So yeah, that is, uh, that is what's up I'm also going to be avoiding um, Like, there's a lot of People and places and things And I'm just not for that right now um, So yeah that's it. Uh, yes. Please follow us on social media. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter as Old Timey Crimey. You can find us there. You can also go to our Patreon, Patreon.com/slash Old Timey Crimey, and see our offerings. We have quite a few, you know, uh, old tiny crimeys. You can listen to the back catalog there, and also uh, if you get at the higher level, you get. Early access, so you get to hear these episodes two days sooner than everybody else. There's other bonuses, too, so go take a look at that. And uh, Detectives by the Decade is my other podcast. Uh, if you want to just go and, and search for that and, and give it a listen and see if it's up your alley, if it's not, that's cool. If it is, so uh, I'll see you there. So, see so ya. Yeah, and uh, what did I miss? I missed something. Tell your friends, tell your damn friends about it.
1: Tell your God goddamn friends, or I'll find you and tell them for you.
0: This was a lot of, a lot of research, and then two and a half hours of sitting here sweating my ass off and losing my voice. So tell your damn friends.
2: Oh my god. Yeah, it was. I've been sitting in the mid sixties on my comfy bed, reclining. I mean, it's just, it's been so rough. I've only had one cider. I mean, God.
3: I am sweating like a whore in church right now. I have an air yes,
1: conditioner and a dog. <laughs>
0: all right that is it for us thank you so much for joining us and make sure you join us next week for the final episode in our jack the reary series jack the reary series oh yeah oh
1: that's that's another porno (laughs) i've watched (laughs) jack
0: Jack the ripper series where we delve into the suspects thank you for joining us and we will see you next week bye bye
1: I'm going to go Jack the Reary now.) <laughs> <laughs>
0: My sources this week are Haley Rubenhold, The Five, The Untold Stories of the Women Killed by Jack the Ripper, JackTheRipper.org, Wikipedia, and Casebook.
1: My sources are the same as last week. Just go back and uh, look at that episode again, play just (laughs) this part over, and you're going to get exactly right, and our our, uh, listen count goes up by one, so I'm not going to tell you.
3: (laughs) Oh, it, Scott. my sources are jacktheripper.org and Casebook
2: my sources are Jack the Ripper The Definitive History by Donald Rumbelow uh, the Metropolitan Police uh, History section on met.police.uk and then The Five by Haley Rubenhold and various stuff I picked up over the decades from reading things